Listen to The Astonishing Junk Drawer exclusively at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. I don't think people are taking time off work to hit this. <laughs> I, uh, you sent me some video of you dancing around the kitchen. It was amazing. <laughs> Music any white drunk college kid can dance to. I'll just stick with the AI stuff. That's yeah. Rowan said that, not me. My math teacher, like, she doesn't explain it that well well that's the hallucination right that's like ai hallucination we have lives too <laughs> mother shipton's cave rich adam is coming jim harold is coming i'm doing a lot of laughing is it mm-hmm. astonishing legends would like to thank mint mobile the farmer's dog squarespace simply safe our contributors at patreon.com and you our listeners for making tonight's show possible on our last episode, we transported you back to the eerie streets of Van Meter, Iowa, for a week of late-night terror in October of 1903 to share the spine-chilling tale of the Van Meter monster and its haunting visit to that once tranquil town. One might think that Van Meter is a lot different today, 120 years later, and in some ways it is. But remarkably, Van Meter's population remains relatively unchanged, hovering at around a thousand souls. This legend defies all rational explanation, leaving the term high strangeness sounding feeble and inadequate for it by comparison. Skeptics may scoff at the fantastical descriptions, and who can blame them? Even the most ardent believers find themselves grappling with the mind-boggling details. An eight-foot-tall, bat-like creature impervious to bullets, generating a stupefying stench when threatened, and emanating a blinding white light from a mysterious blunt horn atop its head. The Van Meter monster simply refuses to be confined within the boundaries of any known classification. But hold on tight, listeners, because this astonishing legend is more than hard-to-believe details that might have put a quick end to this story when it first happened. What sets this spine-tingling account apart is the caliber of the eyewitnesses who stood in the face of the terror it created. These were no ordinary townsfolk. They were the esteemed pillars of Van Meter, individuals whose reputations meant everything in a tight-knit community. Their courage to come forward and stand behind the oddness of their encounters with the Van Meter monster is what ensures this legend endures. And tonight, we'll embark on a quest to uncover the truth behind this perplexing entity that continues to haunt the imaginations of those who dare to delve into its mysteries. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Do not dismiss possibility because it is unfamiliar or difficult. Relegate that which you have determined unlikely to that category only after you have sincerely and objectively reviewed all available data. Noel Voss, page 49 of the Van Meter Visitor, published 2013. Join us tonight for part two of our series on the Van Meter Monster. And we're back. That we are. Thanks for joining us again. Indeed. Well, quick reminder, folks, if you listen to us on Stitcher, that platform is going away on August 29th, 2023, in just a few days. 
If that's your main way of listening, you may want to make a note of all of your subscriptions and find another way to listen to your favorite podcasts because you will lose your listening history as well. Astonishing Legends and the Midnight Library are pretty much everywhere you can listen to a podcast, from Spotify to Apple Podcasts to iHeartRadio, Amazon Music. Yeah, which makes us available on your Alexa smart speaker too, so you can get us on all of those platforms as well by visiting astonishinglegends.com, where each episode of the show has its own built-in player and webpage with all of our research links and images to look at and maps, books. A lot of people want to buy the books we've been talking about as well, so you can find them there. Uh, Sometimes there's videos and then, uh, you know, you can find everything that we have come across in that topic if you are so inclined. And yes, there might be 50 links and uh, we've touched them all, as they say. Yeah, they they don't all stay around forever, but if you get there, you know, within a couple of years of the episode, they're usually still working. And other quick news, we mentioned this on our last episode, but a reminder that you can catch us on a crossover appearance of the podcast Spooks, Creeps, and Assorted Devilry. And uh, Forrest was just on History's Greatest Mysteries again in an episode about the Black Dahlia. So look for that. I did not solve the mystery, but there are some really great theories that are presented in that show. So check it out. And one last program note, folks. We're headed to the business-oriented podcast movement. So we're taking a one-episode break. But we'll be back with a new show on September 9th. And it's also your birthday soon, right, Scott? Uh, No comment. I see that. (laughs) Well, you're only as old as you feel, my friend. All right. Well, let's get back into this wacky story. All right. It's been a couple of weeks since we did the last one for Mm. folks that aren't saving these up and listening to them back to back. So one of the things we like to do when we go to a second part is just recap, especially in a case like this where it's kind of a simple short story, recap what exactly led to this series of events. Because tonight we really want to talk about the theories and uh, maybe a little bit more about the character of our witnesses and try to figure out what's at the root of this encounter. I will say, I mean, here's the the strange thing is that, yes, it's 1903. Okay, long time ago. I believe, if my maths are correct, over 100 years. 120 years exactly, yeah. But really, I mean, this is- Almost to the month, by the way. We're not talking about a story, though, that was from the late 19th century or the 16th century. It is not uh, Elizabethan times. This is pretty recent in our stretch of history, and so it was well-documented. It's in the newspaper. They had newspapers back then. There was only several generations away of, of family members. These are known people- and very well-respected and known people. And imagine this, if you were born in 1930 or around World War II, as some uh, boomers still are, these could have been your grandparents or great-grandparents that had these experiences. And you could have asked them about that. Like, hey, Grandpa, did you realize? Yes, I did really see it. Please stop asking. I really did see <laughs> That's a right. giant eight-foot-tall Batman creature <laughs> shine a light at me. You know this. It's like, like I just, I, yeah, and uh, they would have stuck by it. And And here's the other thing that's, really important about it because we have this documentation and these accounts. And and again, imagine if you grew up in a small town. Well, look, imagine if you grew up in a big city, okay? Let's say here in LA, it's like, oh, major land developer Rick Caruso said he just saw a giant humanoid bat thing (laughs) jumping off the building. Yeah. All right. Well, that may affect the mayoral election or the current mayor, uh, Karen, Mayor Karen Bass, who, who won that election. Somebody of that caliber saying like, yeah, I just saw that. And yeah. so did these other guys, the guy that owns the, the Walmart right, <laughs> were just right. a regular thing. Yeah. All the top leaders in the city were coming forward with this story. And imagine now if you grew up in a small town and everybody knows who owns the one big 
hardware store that everybody goes to, the True Value Hardware Store on Main Street. That's we right. all know that guy. We know his family. Well, I've been over to your house a hundred times. Come on, don't you know me? Yes, <laughs> that's the idea. That was by Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, was good. Everybody knows each other. So imagine it's that kind of caliber. That part blows me away. But here's the other part about that. This all unfolds leading to one of the more, let's say, mundane or uh, pedestrian explanations for this and that it was some form of, quote unquote, mass hysteria. Well, if you had listened to our Enfield Monster series, well, actually the one after that, because that case was studied by sociologists at the time as it happened, Dr. David Miller and his team, when they were much younger, but it was fresh, they were there. And it's kind of a similar thing when this unbelievable creature shows up in a small town and a lot of people who aren't just kooks saw it and will attest to it. Well, when something like that happens, what's fascinating to me is that because we are people, we essentially don't really change throughout the uh, generations. We just have fancier toys and different clothes, which then the clothes come back eventually in some form. It all plays out the same way. People react the same way. And right. that can be mappable. And it doesn't really speak to mass hysteria. Now, more on that later. But this instance of the Van Meter monster or visitor tracks with that. It can be studied in the way that people reacted, in the way this town reacted, and the way that it resolved and kind of didn't resolve because that ain't the last sighting, folks. Yeah. And I, I think it's a really good point. And it's important to consider the nature of these folks who are coming forward with this story. And, and they're coming from different walks of life. And of course, they all know each other. They're even different ages. One of them is relatively young. Um, Sidney Gregg is a relatively young guy. Yeah. So, just quickly, before we get into the theories and the ideas behind what may have happened here, let's take a look at those initial encounters and how they played out in a brief overview here. First encounter, Tuesday, September 29th, 1903. Mm -hmm. Ulysses Griffith is coming home to Van Meter. He's an implement salesman. He's been out on the road all day. He's coming home at one in the morning. He sees a bizarre sight. It was a dark figure perched on the rooftop of the very familiar to him Mather and Gregg building. And what caught his attention was a strange light coming from whatever it was on the roof. Now, his first mm -hmm. thought was that it was a burglar, and he's trying to work out what exactly it was when it vanished. It vanished from right. the roof, and then it appeared instantly on another building across the street. Now, at that point, he was like, well, it's not a burglar. I've had a long day. That's weird. I'll tell people <laughs> yeah. about it in the morning, but I'm going to bed. <laughs> a little bit like... Woodrow Derenberger driving home from a, a long day uh, for a long job. And it's just like, oh, now this happens. That's yeah, great. That's what I need. This <laughs> just, is perfect. I'm probably not going to fall right asleep. Or maybe he did, as we know, paranormal apathy. It's like, uh, slept like a baby that night with weird things happening. And for a second there, sir, you sound a little bit, one of my favorite persons on the TVs, uh, Dr. Travis Taylor. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't remember which word in there, but it was I, a, li I a little bit, which was unbelievable. Unbelievable. We you saw know, orbs in the sky, and though it was, you know. I love his accent. I'll do an impression. All very That's not for now, though. Okay, so let's go on to the second encounter. Mm -hmm. The very next day, Wednesday, September 30th, 1903, roughly the same time of night. Dr. Fred Alcott was asleep in a room at the back of his office when a bright light shining on his face from outside woke him up. He grabbed a large pistol, ran outside, and shot at what appeared to be a half-human, half-animal being with large bat-like wings and a light coming out of a blunt horn on its head. Mm -hmm. Right? So when he sees, what did he do? He shot it five times, 
saving his last bullet for God knows what before running inside. <laughs> well, uh, the, the creature was unaffected. Right. No, somebody uh, wrote into us, uh, and again, uh, we don't have time to write it back, but we do read a lot of the letters I keep saying that I know. But there's uh, there's several reasons for having just five rounds. One of them is that you have the hammer on an empty cylinder, on an empty chamber. Yes. Because uh, guns, you know, sometimes they, if you dropped it, could go off. Right. You know, so it's a safety reason for some people who uh, carry an old wheel gun, as they call them, or a revolver. Also, if you have a double action revolver, then you don't have to have it really on the safety. Like you said, you could, you could pull it, draw it, and fire immediately well, having to cock the hammer back to release it if you had the uh, the hammer in the safety position. So there's several reasons why people would say like, well, I thought it was a six shooter and uh, you had six bullets. Well, there's several reasons why he may have only fired five shots. Well, the, the original article said that he retained one round. It didn't yes. say that he only had five. The, well, there you go. So that answer is right. I just want to answer yeah. that question as well. Yes. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't matter though. The point is that an argument has been made as well that it's like, well, you know, look, you got people firing in the dark and, uh, you know, from far away and, you know, maybe nobody hit it. Right. It's like, think in this scenario no, It wasn't here, always far away. This In fact, he might've been the farthest one. Dr. Alcott. Yeah. Exactly. And and then the other thing you have to realize, yeah, when you get to the mine area uh, and there's 50 guys, I, I can't remember how many, if they ever was a tally of how many people came down there with weapons, other than, as they said, enough to sink the Spanish Armada. Right. Well, you got to figure that at least a few rounds are going to hit this thing and it's right. a compatriot. So right. it doesn't really fly for me that everybody missed. And in this case, though, it's like, okay, well, look, if you shoot a large creature, say you, you shoot a grizzly bear with a small caliber handgun, it may not do anything except make it mad or right. make it run away. So in yeah. this case, I can see that, but that's not the case for the entire story. So I just want to put that out there. So coming on to our third encounter, the very next day, Thursday, October 1st, 1 a.m. again, Clarence or Peter Dunn, he was known as yes. Peter mm -hmm. to his friends there. Local bank cashier, who would later become the manager, and a mayor, and a bunch of other things we mentioned in part one. And he, he went on to uh, be promoted and become mayor. I think he was on the school board. He did. He mm -hmm. winds up doing everything. He's yeah. convinced that whatever people have been seeing is a gang of thieves casing the bank. So he goes down to guard yeah. the townsfolk's money himself with right. a shotgun full of buckshot, loaded with buckshot. Mm -hmm. And so he's in there at night. He hears some strange gurgling noises outside the wall. Not in the front, by the way. This is the side of the building. Yeah. Yeah. The, the noises are another weird thing. I'm like, God, how, how spine tingling, chilling would that be? Yeah. To hear something so unnatural and creepy. I mean, yeah. and, and here's the other thing. Something with, I presumably, if it's eight feet tall, something with a large lung capacity, which is also what freaks me out about Bigfoot calls. And yeah, I, you may not believe in that. I have owls, weirdly enough, yes, in LA. There are, well, they're coming down from Griffith Park. You don't know where they come from. They could have been at the 7-Eleven. You don't know if they came from Griffith Park. <laughs> well, no, sometimes they are. I, I, I think I told you when I, uh, a few years ago, I saw one sitting on top of a Rite Aid sign. Yeah, you know, there you go. And more towards the suburban Al's Park. Owls got to do what an owl's got to do. They, they, they adapt. They have their territory. They go away for a while, but I'll hear them hoot. And if you were up close to them, some of these fellers, uh, the, they're pretty big for yeah. a bird. They have a lot of lung capacity. So it's like, hoo, 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 hoo. it's a deep 
sound. It's a deep howl. It's, it's not a howl. It's a deep. No, I've hoot. heard them. I have. I have them here. At my Give house a hoot. too in North Carolina. Well, as a lot of yeah. people say, with a with a Bigfoot call, imagine something of that size making a sound with the the air and the vocal capacity. So anyway, these yes. are not screeches that everybody hears, but just weird, raspy, metallic sounding, right. uh, gurgling like somebody's being strangled. It's just freaky. Yeah. So he hears that out the side of the building and then suddenly a very bright blinding light shines into his eyes through the front door window of the bank mm-hmm. and he gets up and fires at near point blank range with the shotgun. Again, yeah. loaded with buckshot. The there next you go. Day, you, got a, you got a blunder bus. Uh, yeah. You're probably going to hit it. Yeah. The (laughs) next day he goes outside. He he didn't want to go out right after he fired the shot for obvious reasons. No trace of an injured man, animal, or beast, except for some strange three-toed tracks that, if I'm not mistaken, I think they were around the side of the building more where he heard the the gurgling sounds than where he fired the shot. Right. But not just one. There were several. Several. And he did take a, yeah. So there was at least, at the very least, one plaster casting of it. Yeah. The other thing I realized that there's a, uh, you know, one of the people that saw that, you know, the doctor would have plaster, presumably, right. yeah. for setting uh, casts, you know, yeah. you break your arm, you're setting a cast. So there's plaster, people know how to use it. And they had some right there. And where is that thing? You know? Yeah. Yeah. That's missing. The three guys who wrote the Van Meter Visitor book, they have some theories yeah. on it that I thought were pretty good. I want to answer one thing, though. You asked me in part one, and I couldn't remember the name right oh, off yeah. the bat. So I think we glossed over it or yeah. just kind of let that uh, let that dangle, as they say. Well, there's a YouTube video, which we have the links up, and they're on the part one website. will be for part two as well. And it comes from, uh, I believe it's on the Supernatural Dares YouTube channel, and it's titled Monsters and Mysteries, Van Meter Visitor, featuring Chad Lewis. He's one of the authors of the book, yeah. Yeah, he's on camera, but it's that, you asked me about um, some old timer, somebody, uh, one of the older residents of Van Meter, on camera making a comment. And that was, that's what I'm talking about with my earlier statement, is that these people who knew these people were still around (laughs) at that, you know, for a while. A generation is generally about 33 years, considering... Yeah, there were people still alive back in the two early 2000s who may knew these people. I mean, they were younger, but... Yeah, I remember him saying he was a very young man, but he he did remember Peter Dunn, who we were just talking about, that fired the shot. Right. So one of the elders of the town here, Fletcher Jennings, an old-time Van Meter resident, said, uh, well, a couple of things that I made notes of. He said, first, that people who saw it claimed it could jump from building to building. So that's one right. thing, is that not... The dude in a suit, uh, I get maybe Spring Hill Jack, but whatever it was. All the way across uh, the street, though. Yeah, I, right. Yeah. right. Yeah. Matrix style, just leap yeah. from one. So that gets your attention. Same thing with Griffith. It's yeah. like, okay, that's not the dude. and It's not a burglar kind of thing. But they're still going with this. Peter Dunn is like, okay, it's not, we're not talking superhero. They didn't, remember you had that concept back then. You go with what you know. It's like, okay, it's a burglar and maybe... Griffith here, uh, Mr. Griffith is is mistaken. So the most natural thing is that uh, it's a guy. I'm going to sit out here with a shotgun and I'm going to put a stop to this. Well, Chad Lewis in the video clip also says that Griffith said that it disappeared, then reappeared from across the street. So I, I bring that up because it's something to consider when we go to our theories that there does seem to be a little bit of uh, this thing's ability to appear and disappear. 
Yeah, but is that it's maybe that's it just flying in the dark. Well, we don't know. Like I said, yeah. it, it just it disappeared and reappeared. It and again, you can be mistaken. Uh like it seems <laughs> I always think about this. When there's a gnat, you know, you maybe you got the, some fruit peels in the garbage and it's in the summer you'll get a gnat and you reach out to grab when you think, I got it. And yeah. then you look in your hand and it's gone. It's yeah, yeah your exactly. eye doesn't, you know, I can't remember what, how many images, 14 per second. It's got to be more than that. You're not seeing everything. That's why sleight of hand works with magicians. The eye can be tricked and you're not, uh, you're not getting a steady stream of uh, accurate information. So it looked like it may have disappeared or it just popped up somewhere. But it is, it does add to the mystery of this thing, right? You don't see it flying in from the edge of town. You don't see it flying away off to the distance, like, oh, there it goes. And then, and then it goes over the tree line. It just, right. it seems to pop up and pop away, pop out yeah. of existence. Yeah. Just saying that. Well, anyway, Fletcher Jennings uh, says about Pete Dunn, the bank manager, uh, who that's the guy who blasted out the bank's front window. Bank manager later in life. But at this time, just a cashier, yes. Yeah, he's a cashier on his way up. Became the bank manager in 1935, <laughs> if I'm not mistaken. I That's right, that. yes. Well, according to Fletcher Jennings, this guy ran the town. Yeah. Meaning that he was a mover and a shaker, and again, rose up through the ranks, and uh, was a town father. And Fletcher says, quote, whatever he said, that was it. So if he believed in the monster, everybody did, end quote. There you go. That's kind of the feeling is that it's like, okay, that guy said it was true. We know him to be a straight shooter. Well, maybe not at the monster. <laughs> but he, <laughs> yeah, but we're believing this guy. We're Like I said, <laughs> it's somebody prominent where a lot of people are like, oh God, I, why would he? All right. If he's saying that, uh, I guess it happened. And hey, maybe, maybe the light and the monster are not physically connected. Maybe they can separate. Yeah. What if when he Absolutely. fired his shot, his aim was true, but the monster was around the side of the house going, <laughs> and then he sent the light to the front door. You know, yeah. you don't know. So, well, or it's like the velociraptors, clever girl, clever girl. Ones yeah. on the side, we do know at least there were, were two of them. Maybe That's they didn't right. see both of them. And speaking of stage magic, you know, you do the twins thing. It's like, oh, it's over here. No, it's over here. No, right. It's over here. Who knows? But anyway, it's interesting things to think about. So, that was a quote, like I said, these are known people and prominent people that people tended to trust. So later that night, we have the fourth encounter. This is still October 1st. Otto Vernon White is asleep in his hardware store when he was awoken by a rasping sound. It sounded like two metal files mm -hmm. being rubbed together outside his window. Mind you, he was on the second floor. He opened the window, saw a large dark being of some kind on a telephone pole cross beam outside the window. It was only 15 feet away. He leveled his gun, took a very measured and controlled shot at it, and all it seemed to do was wake it up. Then a horrible, stupefying odor knocked him out. He has no memory mm. of what happened after that <laughs> until he woke up uh, what I presume to be the next morning or several hours later. Mm. That's the fourth encounter, O.V. White there. The fifth encounter is almost concurrent with that one. The sound of O.V. White's gunshot woke up Sidney Gregg. He, too, was sleeping inside a store that he either owned or ran or both. The details are fuzzy on that. He's our youngest eyewitness, as we can tell by the photo of the Bachelors of Van Meter, which you can see mm -hmm. at our site. And it's also, anytime you look it up, this you see him in there. He's the youngest looking guy, but he also has some very nice clothes, clearly a, a prominent member of the community. He's the one that saw the monster descend from the telephone pole, uh, presumably after O.V. White shot it. Right. And notably, he's the one with the detail that it lowered itself down to the ground with its beak. Like mm -hmm. a parrot climbing off a perch in a cage, if you've ever seen right. that. So then it began to sort of leaping along and stretching out its huge featherless wings before taking off 
because he got spooked by the fast mail train that came roaring through town. At that point, Greg was only 15 feet away from it himself. And mm -hmm. if this detail is correct, when it took off, it flew toward, in this case, Forrest, get counter to your point of it popping in and out of existence. Right, right. It flew this time toward the abandoned J.L. Platt coal mine and the neighboring tile factory, which was still in operation. Well, exactly. So that's how people put that two and two together. It's like, if it's heading there, well, what's there? Well, a right. big open hole in the ground. Yeah. Here's the logical thing, especially these folks uh, who are of an agrarian background. It just can't come from nowhere. This thing has to come out from somewhere, out of the ground. This is not an isolated thing in the Midwestern states. We're talking Illinois, Iowa, Wisconsin, all of these places. Strangely, the mound areas of the uh, the ancient Cahokia peoples, all this history goes back. This legend or the sighting of something big and flying through the skies has always been going on. So the sixth encounter is actually, it's actually kind mm. of anticlimactic and a little bit comical. So Sidney Gregg, you know, he was the last one to see it flying right. back toward the coal mine, which he couldn't see from where he was downtown, but that was the direction it went. A group of townsfolk went to the mouth of the abandoned mine, waiting for it to show up. So a lot of the workers from the neighboring tile factory, right. which was connected, they were both, it's J.L. Platt tile and J.L. Platt coal mine, which was, I believe mm -hmm. it was senior that opened the coal mine and junior that ran the tile factory. The coal mine was abandoned, but not closed up. So J.L. Platt Jr., he is hearing these noises. There's people gathering over there from the tile factory. And they go and they wait for this thing to fly into the mine because they think that's where it's staying. Once again, nothing happened until one in the morning. So we're going to read mm -hmm. this, uh, this piece here. This is from the Des Moines Daily News, October 4th, 1903. This is from the original H.H. H. Phillips article. And we're reading this from its republication in the book, The Van Meter Visitor, which we've mentioned so many mm, times by Lewis Voss and Nelson, published in 2013. In their Appendix B, they had a bunch of articles listed, but they themselves say in the book, just for the record, this one article is really the source article. Everything else is kind of a jumping off and rearranging of well, the original like, article. And that has continued to this day with various journalisms. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I just want to point out that Platt also heard strange noises coming from purportedly the creature and, yes, that's or right. creatures, because now it's got a little buddy. Yes. There's a Scrappy-Doo yes. along with a Scooby. Yeah, yeah. Scrappy-Doo. <laughs> sidekick. Yeah. Uh, that's do. happening. So yes, so that's at this point. <laughs> and also there was a shootout. So a little bit of a drama, a little bit of a gauntlet yeah, drama exactly. here. But here's yeah. what the article has to say. Several persons were watching for its appearance. Among the rest was Professor Martin of the Southside High School, who from description gave of it had pronounced it to be some sort of an antediluvian monster. But the show did not open until 1 a.m. J.L. Platt Jr. was at the brick plant in the northwest part of town, where are employed a considerable number of men day and night. And a few minutes before 1, he heard a noise down in the old abandoned coal mine about 40 rods away. And as the men had been hearing noises for some time, he went up to the opening of the mine. Presently, the noise opened up again, as though Satan and a regiment of imps were coming forth for battle. But in a moment, the monster appeared, accompanied by another somewhat smaller. But each gave off that brilliant light from the horn-like protuberance as they sailed away. A crowd of men and guns were gathered together to rid the earth of them when they should return, 
as it seemed evident, they had been occupying the old mine for some time. The electric lights were turned on all over town to frighten them off, but they had evidently gone elsewhere, for they did not return until the first streak of dawn. The reception they received would have sunk the Spanish fleet, but aside from unearthly noises and the peculiar odor, they did not seem to mind it, but slowly descended the shaft of the old mine. Today, the town is all excitement, and a force of men has been set to work to barricade the mouth of the mine. Several methods of exterminating them have been suggested, but nothing seems to meet the approval of those in charge. Des Moines Daily News, October 4th, 1903. Okay, because Forrest and I are both translators mm-hmm. of old mm-hmm. newspaper ease, I just want to explain <laughs> a little bit yeah. about what's happening here, or the way that I took it. And uh, Forrest, I can't remember, do you know how long a rod is? I can't remember how, I looked that you up. You know what, time. you had a long description of it in the Watsika Wonder, if we all remember. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I suggested 5. against 5 it, but it, but it was fascinating, it's interesting. It's 5.5 5 okay. yards, 16 and a half feet. So he is saying it's 40 rods, uh, 700 feet or so away. And I was hearing the noise from a long way away. That's a long way to hear a noise. No, no. I just wrapped up watching Beyond Skinwalker Ranch last night, the finale. It's, it is. It's a clip show. But in, I mean, not of, you know, past seasons. They're just, but I, I appreciate this because then I don't have to go back and like see all the uh, head scratching freak out moments. They have them all compiled and explain them a little bit better. But one that they did not have in the original shows are a pair of glowing eyes in the trees that were staring back at Andy and Paul, the two main investigators. And it's like, what the heck? What is that? And it's not a feature. It's not a machine. You don't know what it is, but it's not giving off a heat signature like an animal would either. Because it's cold out there. This thing, whatever, anything alive, not wearing a uh, a shielded suit, as uh, sometimes soldiers will wear, that traps your body heat so you don't get picked up on FLIR whatever this was, was just a creepy two red dots. And just, they noticed that how the sound from other locations seemed to travel. And sometimes that can happen. And uh, predators use it. Of course, it's very natural. You've been out in the woods where it seems very quiet suddenly and sound will travel. So this is an odd, it's all very odd here in what's being experienced with the senses and what's being described, and it's kind of a mishmash. And yes, it's 1903, and it's being reported right. on by a paper, uh, a newspaper person of the time. So it's hard to tell, but there's definitely right. something weird going on here and weird phenomena that accompanies this. Right. And so what I'm seeing here when we read this particular section of the article is essentially they were all standing around. They heard noises. Yeah. They went to the mine. They weren't armed yet. They went to the mine, and then these they, they things were tracking, came up. Tracking them, yeah, right? This right. thing comes up. the The little guy comes up. Little Van Meter do comes up the, the shaft, and they go yeah. out and they fly away. And everybody's like, "Oh hell no!" And then they everybody goes and gets guns and comes back and waits. Yeah, they've got the lights on in the town because they're trying to keep it from going to the town, I guess, which right, is not right, right there. They're outside of town, kind of. So then they're waiting for it to come back. They wait, 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 wait. It comes back and it goes down into them and they're shooting like crazy. There's a huge, like lots of shots enough to sink, quote, the Spanish fleet. Right. And then it goes down and it, it doesn't seem to care and lowers itself down into the hole of the abandoned mine. And so what you think is going to happen now is you can get a bunch of explosives like First mm-hmm. Blood, Rambo. They're going to blow the entrance <laughs> to the cave. and But they didn't do yeah. that. Apparently they set about, according to the article, building a barricade. So I right. guess they got some uh, friendly volunteers who were not scared to death to go up there, 
and build a barricade in front of the mine. It's not even clear if that was ever finished or what happened after that. And one of the things that Lewis Voss and Nelson, I think it's probably Lewis in this chapter, Mm because each one of them wrote different chapters, speculate on is, you know, is there another opening? Is there... Uh, uh, could, be, thing could sure. be coming and going from, you know, if it even is a real thing, I'll get to that in our conclusions, but like whatever it is, <laughs> right. they then attempted to seal it in the mine. And that's kind of like, that's all she wrote on this story. All those encounters that we just mentioned. And then it ends with them attempting to barricade it in the mine. And that's not even clearly indicated whether they did that or not. What it seems to me is that, of course, they're probably debating other tactics. Like, well, we could put uh, noxious gas down there, poison, uh, you know, a <laughs> lower down a crate of dynamite, whatever it is, at least to a certain point. And then, of course, it uh, starts to remind me of uh, one of my favorite films, Sorcerer. Uh, oh, yeah. The recently passed uh, terrific the director, William Friedkin. Yes. The late William Friedkin. In this case, though, you're not uh, getting a consensus of the town authorities, the elders, the town founders, to on what exactly they should do. Because once you collapse this mine, well, here's what I, I'm not sure. I know that the mine had not been in use for a while. That's right. Yeah. But it also hadn't, it seemed to me, hadn't been completely abandoned. Like maybe you don't want to burn that bridge, so to speak. It had been closed for years. I can't remember exactly how many. It does say in the book. But. I think it was under 10, maybe, if I, if I recall from what okay. I read. Okay. So it wasn't like it's an ancient abandoned mine. Like, oh, no, this no. thing's 100 years yeah. old, you know, from the 1850s. Yeah. The idea was that it was not an operated mine anymore, but maybe an attractive nuisance. You see that a lot. They don't go to great lengths to totally close down mines. I've seen this. I've been in one in Death Valley that was yeah. just still open on the side of a hill and you could go down as far as your your wits and your courage would take you. Not a good thing to do, not suggested. Yeah. And uh, But, you you know, I walked back in about a, maybe 100 yards until it got dark and then it's scary. Yeah. But it's just open. It's not like you legally have to close them off. And what we know now is that at least at the turn of the 20th century, it has been overgrown. So if you can see photos of it that are around, it's kind of a lump. It's a little bit of a scratch in the ground. So at some point, eventually, it's been filled up enough that it's mostly flat, but you can kind of see where it was. It's concave to me, though, not convex. A little like bit. I think of a yeah. lump as being convex. This looks like a sunken spot. Like, well, it was lumpy and sunken. It was <laughs> it was wavy to I don't me. Like, see, I don't think a lump can have a negative slope value for it. Did you I'm go? Just, well, you know what I'm saying? It's not all flat, and now now there's just a, a small mound, and it's no, not just a No, but if you look on Google Earth, it hole. looks like you almost, if you stuck you know, devil's thumb, stuck your thumb into the hill there or whatever. That's true. But there's also, uh, like I said, it's not just like any kind of mine entrance. It's not just a, a, a <laughs> just a perfect circle, no. like outer range. Uh, a lot of TV show references here, but you go down where it's just a perfectly flat hole, there's an entrance to it. So you have to be able to uh, basically get carded you know, there's got to be track laid into it because you need to bring stuff out of it. Yeah, officially. none of that's so, there anymore. It's like there's no buildings. There's no nothing. The only remaining structures are the uh, what's left of the uh, brick factory or the tile factory. Right. Well, one thing that Chad, Noah, or Kevin actually did, which was very handy, is on their Facebook page for the Van Meter visitor. There's two separate pages, if we didn't explain that before they're both linked on our webpage for this episode is that there is a Facebook page for the festival. And then there's one just for the, the creature, the phenomenon and the accompanying book. And so they actually pinned exactly with 
Google Maps exactly where the mine used to be. So that's kind of yes, handy. Like yes. I said, you're not going to see a whole lot, but you can see a disturbance in the terra, in the ground. Oh, and uh, I have, the I, by the way, I had found that too on Google Earth, just on my own too. So I'll, we'll put that pin on our notes for this episode. Yeah, give those to me. And the idea here though, is that eventually like everything else, as we always say, things get swallowed up by the earth and uh, it takes some digging. I mean, come on, you know, borehole 10X. The original shaft for the money pit. No one exactly knows where that is. And you'd think you'd, they'd be yeah, able to, Island, but over yeah. the, yeah, on Oak Island, but over the years, it's been lost. It's full of rusted crap now, but it's been smoothed over somehow just from all the operations and no one exactly knows where it is. Yeah. And if they did, you wonder with our technology now, could the Laginas have a better time finding something, at least antiquated efforts from the past. So here, we don't know if there's any other openings, like a lot of cave entrances. Sometimes there is a uh, there is a passage out. Maybe these things got away because they weren't initially seen right away. But something similar was seen not too long after. Just another uh, note, another little fact for people that are interested. The mine was 257 feet deep. So mm -hmm. that's how far it went down. It's a 26-story building for people trying to put it in building terms. But uh, yeah, so... That's sort of the end of this part of the story. I do want to touch on the book. We've mentioned it a bunch of times, and I mentioned it one last time. I uh, hope people will go out and check it out. The Van Meter Visitor, A True and Mysterious Encounter with the Unknown by Chad Lewis, Noah Voss, and Kevin Lee Nelson. Uh, it's got a forward by Brad Steiger. It came out in 2013 and was published by uh, backroadslore.com. So you can probably get it there. You can also get it on Amazon. I wanted to say in reading this book, it's a great overview of all kinds of theories. And in addition to being a solid locally researched book, they went there about mm -hmm. the Van Meter Visitor, which they had some compassion on it by switching it from a monster to a visitor. This book is also super well executed. Lewis Voss and Nelson leave no stone unturned in exploring this strange mystery. So we highly recommend the book, not only for its coverage of the legend at hand tonight, but also it's a really good overview on how to dive into something like this mm -hmm. and do a good job of it. And, you know, I wanted to stop short of saying, oh, okay. I kind of feel like if we wrote a book, which we seem to never be doing, this is the same approach we would take. Like, I loved how thorough they were on the back. They just looked at everything from the mundane yes. to the fringe. It, it was a nice balance of information and, and a lot of hard work. So I have a lot of respect for it. Yes, absolutely. I can tell you right now, we would not have done or will do a better job. So <laughs> I was especially impressed, though, with chapter 13 and all their theories. These folks know what they're talking about. These guys have read the books and it's stuff back in 2013 that we were just becoming familiar with in our journey into the paranormal. And these guys have already mapped this out with uh, Jacques Vallée, Young, all the, the mythos, the Joseph Campbell stuff of all how all this fits in. Really deep philosophical thinking on what is our reality? Where do we fit on this scale? Where does the Van Meter visitor fit? in all of this. Who's more real? Are we less real than it? There's a lot to unpack here and it's fascinating. And they did an excellent job on that, I gotta say. Yeah, I thought so too. It actually colored my whole thinking as we were approaching this. Right. So another thing, and I think it was Chad that pointed this out in the book, is like there, there's very little data on this. And a lot of times you come across a story that's really wild and, and you can't find anything but a paragraph or two and there's really not a lot of places to go with it. We come across those and people are like, oh, you should do an episode of this, an episode on that. And it's, you know, all you've got is like three paragraphs and something somebody said who died 100 years ago. And it's like, yeah, it's kind of <laughs> well, hard. 
to turn that into an episode. You, you have to go there. You have to yeah. boots on the ground. You, it's hard to do that as an armchair investigator with an internet connection. So you, this is what these guys did is that they went there and they weren't really, as we told the story a little bit of uh, how this book came about, they weren't really planning on doing a book on this. It's funny. It's interesting. It's kind of like, you know, me going into that house in Kansas being like, <laughs> ah, I don't know if we're going to find anything here. They seem to feel yeah. the same way about this. And they really became converts as they went through the process mm -hmm. of doing the research. And, you know, it all really comes down to this one article in the Des Moines Daily News, which we just read an excerpt from written by H.H. Phillips, who they can't find a lot of information on either, and neither could I. I looked. I don't know why, because these guys, when they said they scraped for things, they scraped. I, I tried to find him. There's not a whole lot of information about him, but he wrote this article that it tells everything that happens. And at the time, there was no town paper in Van Meter. They didn't have one which is unusual because it probably could have supported a little paper that was maybe, I think later one came along that was twice a week or something. But at this time mm. there was no paper. So the only place to get articles were from Des Moines, which was 20 right. miles to the east and still mm -hmm. is, you know, I said was, it is. That's where they both are today. The towns <laughs> mm -hmm. haven't moved. That's what's interesting about it. But the story, there's some oral history, which they also collected in interviews. And there's, uh, they talked to the town librarian and got more of that information together. And, and we found a lot of the articles that they mentioned online as well. So we were able to corroborate some of the sources that they found. And, and we'll share some of the more intense data from those here coming up in a minute. But I, I think the next thing we should do is talk a little bit about, as we're getting into the theories, which is that's what it's time to do, folks, talk about mm, like, what mm. could this possibly have been, all these different ideas that this thing might have been. And we were sensitive here because there's a lot of overarching concepts that we've, I like to say, trotted out before, you know, the, the mm. tropes of the paranormal explanation for the unknown cryptid, whether it's Sam the Sandown Clown or, yes. or uh, maybe what happened at uh, Cisco Grove, which is another one of my favorite weird, you know, just the really weird ones are my favorites. Same way I used to feel about the X-Files. I preferred the weird one-offs <laughs> than the overarching. I know it's the episodes. cool thing to do, or you have one or the other, but I got to say, people ask, even you ask, uh, how has my view on this changed my worldview and my uh, otherworldly view. And as we go along here, I'm just wondering, is it is the range and variety of weirdness and different types of creatures and beings and sightings and experiences, is it infinite? Yeah. That would blow my mind. I, is there just like, well, actually, there's a lot. There are actually 48,000 different types of you know, pseudo-spiritual beings and weird stuff and elves and gnomes and creatures and yeah. flying things. and But that's it. It's, I know it's a lot. It's 48,000, but it's a finite amount. And yeah. you'll never get to all of them. It's just that people around the world will experience that set number. I mean, I'm being facetious here, but it's, it's like, no, is it some hey. crazy set number that's a lot? But really... It could be infinite because each individual consciousness, don't want to get ahead of myself here yeah. in the theories, but does each individual consciousness shape these things? So in reality, it could be the only finite thing is how many different types of people are going to experience this. And it, it's slightly different for each one, but there are a lot of similarities that are commonly shared. Yeah. Who knows? Fascinating mm -hmm. stuff to think about. And that brings us around to some stuff that we've covered before, a few we have and a few we haven't. One, of course, would be the Spring-Heeled Jack, which right. is one of your more famous versions of these stories. And, and in fact, that had just happened, I think. The stories were like in 18... 
97 or 1898 mm. that was happening. I'm not positive on that, but the book about Spring Hill Jack was in wide circulation in 1903. So if you were thinking, oh, this could be a hoax or an attention grab or whatever, yeah. that book was a known thing in global publication at this point. It was our 15th episode of Astonishing Legends that we posted back in 2015. So if you want to hear about that, that is a crazy story about a dude who had, they called him Spring Hill Jack because he could jump really high over fences and <clears throat> roofs of buildings and everything. But he also, uh, like, he had a couple of things in common with this Van Meter visitor or this bat or whatever you want to call it. He, he, <laughs> well, he, like a lot of these stories, there was a footprint and there right. was a description that went with it. And the police at the time said they photographed it. And I think no one knows where the photograph was or they tried to photograph it and didn't. Yeah. They did have photography, I think, at that time to do that. But I love the description is that one person who described the print because it, however, the, how much this contraption, if he was wearing one, weighed or the amount yeah. of spring force to get him to leap 30 feet into the air. They said it looked mechanical. So right. in the fine dirt, in the footprint, it looked mechanical to them, not like a flat, smooth boot print. Right. And so then you're coming down to like some weird mechanical device. And again, we have an whole episode on that if you want to check it out. Mm -hmm. But the other thing about Spring Hill Jack was he spat fire. He spat in fire on In some instances, sure. Yeah. <laughs> That's how rude. But he also yeah. had a thing on his, and some descriptions, an amulet or a lens yeah. on his chest that dazzled. It had like a flash strobe that dazzled the eye and caused people to faint. Which sounds a little bit like the Van Meter Visitor with yeah. this shining light. Yeah. So in addition to Spring Hill Jack, there's been a lot of stories over the years and a lot of folks have heard them, especially those famous photos of pterodactyls like in the Old mm -hmm. West. There's one that supposedly was spotted in uh, Tombstone, Arizona in 1890, and it was supposedly yeah. there was a picture of it published in the Tombstone Epitaph. But Turns out that maybe that picture was never really published, and some folks figured out, this is just a few years ago, we'll have a link to this from True West Magazine, which is a great magazine that mm. talks about this. They figured out that in this one picture that looked like there was some sort of pterodactyl thing on the ground in front of these guys standing around with rifles sort of posing. Oh, uh, yes, we've all seen, style. yeah. Yeah, but then it turns out that that was actually them standing in front of someone that had been shot and killed, and that person that was dead, who was the reason they took the picture, and then they photoshopped that guy out and put in this like rough looking pterodactyl thing. So that's what one of those is. So it doesn't seem like, you know, the story in Tombstone, it was like these guys saw this thing and it got tired and they avoided it and they shot it down. And then they measured its wings and it was 160 feet, which is nuts as somebody who has just spent the last couple of days studying pterosaurs, <laughs> pteranodons and pterodactyls. Right. 160 feet is absolutely out of this world as a, it would have to be a paranormal creature. For the well, <laughs> I think any not case. anything. Look, biological. you don't have to be huge to be paranormal. No, uh, but I little, mean, that's if just, a little tiny fairy yeah. pterodactyl. And of course, when I grew up, there'll be articles on that. There is a difference between a pterodon, which is the overarching genus name. I hope I'm getting yeah. that right. I have an, I'm not going to read it for you folks, but it's, it's, uh, we'll have that link. And, and basically, that is the broader, it was a taxonomy name for right. uh, these different species of a similar thing, but they're not all the same. And the pterodon is not exactly a dinosaur. It doesn't uh, fit all of the definitions, but there is a, a long thread on unresolved mysteries that speaks to what you just spoke of. And it talks about, you know, the recap here, just going over the bullet points. The context is the tombstone story itself. 
talks about that and how this case is likely unrelated, but tangled into the story of that. Because there's another big bird photo of this thing, something tacked to a barn. Yes, I know that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. there's a few photos out there. And so uh, another bullet point here of this recap, stories of actual big birds killed in various places in America one of which, in fact, was nailed to a barn. However, none fit the size of the bird described in the photo, including the tombstone story. And another gentleman here, uh, Cranmer himself, one of the guys who is a, I believe, a contemporary of Ivan Sanderson. We may talk about him in a little bit here. He's made statements regarding the photo uh, himself saying, uh, it, with a letter saying, uh, you know, this is a quote by one of the men in the photo, quote, shucks, there is no such bird, never was, never will be, end quote. So yes, this Reddit article does uh, talk a little bit about somebody is a who is a big name and a, a, we're a big fan of, Ivan T. Sanderson. And yes. again, this is the Unresolved Mysteries subreddit. But something interesting here about these- He was friends these, with uh, John Keel. I think they were buddies. They, he would have been around. Yeah, I don't I'm think he sure friends, died yeah. until uh, the 60s or 70s. Yeah. Yeah, he was uh, had a fascinating life. But a little bit about Sanderson here and the photo and the provenance of stuff like this, because of course, it's this is their internet of the day. They would get photos of like, what the heck is this? And no Photoshop. So you'd have to be skeptical of where these photos came from, but also with photo retouching. And yes, there are fairy photos that apparently fooled uh, Arthur Conan Doyle. Ah. But back then, really, you could see and it's like, okay, that's, yeah, because you'd actually have to paint on the photo itself and take another photo of it or manipulate the negative in some way. But talking about Cranmer and his, his contemporary and that photo of some giant, what was termed as a Thunderbird then. Ivan Sanderson claimed that he had a copy of that, an original copy of the photo, but it wasn't oh, yeah. taken in Tombstone. It was taken in Texas, not Nevada or Tombstone. Well, that's it. We're talking, by the way, about two different photos, you and me. Yes, that's true. Yeah, because you're talking about the No, big, I know which one you're talking one. about. Yeah, yeah. And I'm talking about more of a blurry or kind of oldie, timey. Yeah, where you see the guys with the rifles and then the yeah, that's on the right. ground in front of them. Yeah, yeah. My point being with mentioning that is that that's not the only big bird photo floating around right. around this time. Right. How this other one that I'm describing was talking about where it was nailed to a barn, how it was described was you couldn't see the head very well. It was hanging down, all black, massive wingspan, maybe close to 30 feet, but more so a bird than yeah. something that is pterodon like or leathery or leathery with right. a fine hair on it because as we may be talking about here they suspect for something that size something man-sized and of course the largest ones that we know of ornithocaris yeah, that species had hollow bones roughly the size of a man large wingspan but it also required they believe and again this is an educated guess by scientists that it also relied on updrafts of warm or hot air right. to give it lift. Right. So you wonder, okay, in the fall in Van Meter, was there enough, if this thing's flying around, was there enough for it to propel itself successfully? Right. If we're talking about an extant type of prehistoric bird. But again, something not feathery because that was never described in the uh, eyewitness accounts of this creature of the Van Meter monster it was not feathery. It did not really look like it, it acted, had, it had some bird-like behaviors. But it also could have been reptilian or bat-like, but also not bat-like. They knew what bats looked like, of course, back then. But it didn't seem like uh, it was a hybrid of some kind. 
And one final comment about uh, Sanderson, what I thought was interesting, is that he saw, it wasn't just photographs, he actually saw something that he thought was an extinct, extant, cryptid, bat-like bird. Right. That is called the uh, Lichiao. And they think that maybe that name, and it's spelled O-L-I-T-I-A-U, so it's Lichiao, Lichiao, something along those lines. I'm not sure anybody really knows, <laughs> so hold your emails. It's basically what he described, and I think he was on a river at the time, this thing flew over in Africa, that uh, I think at the Congo, this thing was about the size of an eagle to a condor, and I guess wingspan six to maybe, I don't know, maybe even 12 feet, over six, maybe six to eight feet, but more bat-like. And what he described as having the the face not of a bat, but more like a monkey, and not the horse face uh, bat that we usually you usually see. Of course, you know since we did the Jersey Devil, it's like it's this bat thing that's got a horse head on it, right? And it's like yeah, and that's right, pretty right. intriguing. It's a good example of perhaps something. But as we did our research, we can say definitively that it does not live there in New Jersey, right? And right. would not survive in New Jersey. It is not from those areas. This creature is a native of the Congo and had been seen by natives. And Sanderson saw it himself. And he's like, yeah, it was unmistakable. Everybody on the boat saw this thing. And it was a very odd sight. And again, this guy knows his zoology. So it was an unnatural creature, at least unnatural to them, unknown. So yeah, he had his own sighting, but that's how he described it. It was kind of bat-like leathery, but not totally like a bat, something in between. It had a monkey human head. <laughs> So, yeah, I would have loved to have known, you know, you know, didn't whip out his iPhone and get a shot of it. That's all you had back then. But, and again, he was quite a character, an adventurer. And what's interesting about Sanderson, yeah, he was a, he was a character, but he was also taken pretty seriously by some authorities. But of course, yes. it's unprovable. Again, it's all about personalities, especially as I'm seeing the uh, quote unquote disclosure kind of thing happening here that people align themselves with a personality that they like. It's interesting that you mentioned the Jersey Devil because that's something that we have also covered and sure. really enjoyed. That was a really fascinating series. There's a lot of history behind that. I think that's one of the ones where Forrest, you and I came down to different conclusions. I don't want to do any spoilers here, but um, <laughs> it's a fascinating story, but there is a lot of folklore wrapped up in that one. Oh, of which, course. And, and in a lot of ways, it's different from this, because it was an ongoing thing that lots of people have seen across yeah. different spans of time. This is just a one-week event, really. And so it doesn't have that in common. But what it does have in common is this weird thing that's flying and the wings and people shooting at it, including, what, Napoleon's brother, I think? or <laughs> Yeah, his cousin. I know, boy, it's been such a long time ago. Cousin. One description yeah, that while, I did like, yeah. though, is, again, shooting at it. He hit it because to his description, and we're talking probably about a large bore, smooth bore rifle, maybe even a 50 caliber ball or something, yeah, a muzzle loader. He hits this thing and he said it rolled over in the sky. He was pretty sure he hit it. He said this thing kind of did a little loop-de-loop, -loop, rolled over and just kept on its way. So not right. much effect. Whereas you hit something with that size of a caliber of gun which wasn't huge. It's The thing is not grizzly bear sized. So the interesting thing with that is that there are a lot of shared interaction descriptions, effect of shooting it or not shooting it and having no effect. 
nobody's bagged one except for these large thunderbirds of which people claim to have had photos or evidence of something dead and then it just kind of goes away. Right. So again, those are all fascinating in how this breaks down and they're all described kind of differently. It's not just like, oh, there's this one type of very large prehistoric bird and yeah, that's weird. It shouldn't be around, but it's a big feathery thing. Let's say, for example, the tapihara, which is a, a prehistoric bird from Brazil, I think, that had the large bill on its head, a large bony kind of a sail on its forehead. Right, which matches up with other pterosaurs. Yes. They had that. So, And the cassowary has that as well. It's a exactly. descendant of those animals. So That's what I'm saying is that there's descendants and you could have like, well, that was a really big one. That, that should, they shouldn't get that size. Right. But that's within the realm of the fossil record. That's right. also what I'm saying is that, okay, well, that that's really weird. It's unexpected. We were all surprised. It shouldn't have happened. Like the uh, coelacanth, we thought it was gone, but here it is. Or uh, thylacine. All these animals that we think, to our knowledge, should be gone, but, but here's one of them, and right. we have proof, or at least some footage of it. And this is not that. This is so right. outside of that realm. And all these descriptions are so different, it does make you wonder what's going on here. Right. And, and before we get into some more flying things, I do want to quickly talk about gassy things. Um, and I'm, mm-hmm. no, I'm not talking mm-hmm. about taco dinners here, but what I'm, what I'm saying is <laughs> the, the story that we just did not too long ago, Cisco Grove, which was a, an right. alien encounter because there were UFOs involved, UAPs come down, these weird robot things come out of them. And they sent this poor guy up a tree, he's hiding in the tree and the robot stands under him and releases this gas that knocks him out. And they have missing time, and uh, it does it to him over and over and over all night long, trying to get him essentially to fall out of the tree so they can take him off to Zeta Reticuli or whatever. So, right. But he never fell out of the tree, God bless him. You should hear our Cisco Grove episodes if you haven't. But the interesting thing there, the common ground with uh, the incident for Peter Dunn, or Clarence mm-hmm. Peter Dunn, at the bank where you know he, he smelled the stupefying odor and could remember no more about it. Right, right. So um, that's common ground there. You know, people, of course, might say, oh, why didn't you mention the Mad Gasser of of Mattoon, which is another Mm -hmm. famous story, and you probably heard it on other shows. We've never covered (laughs) that one, Um, but I'm sure the guys at Cryptonaut have and uh, several others. Yes, we did talk about it, though, briefly. No, we've talked about uh, it. Yeah, of course, Tess is, uh, she's written a blog entry on everything, folks, and yes, they're really that's fun. Yes, that's true, that's true. <laughs> if you just, if you are just sick of us blathering on, just go to, uh, read one of those. She's got all these topics. She just very concisely tells you what it's about, which we get emails. Also. Just just tell us what this thing's about. I don't want to yeah, hear about your weekend. Yeah, check out Tess's blog. Check out yes. Tess's blog. She, so she wrote an entry on the Mad Gasser of Mattoon. Yes. I will mention this, it being apropos the way that people reacted when there was reports of a mad gasser going around or yeah. the Seattle windshield pitting incident, uh, it was in 1954. All these things that happened all happened the same way. And people thought like, well, it's just mass hysteria. Yeah, it's just social contagion. That's how people, you know, nobody saw any kind of gasser. It was just a phone call from some overexcited people. And then this all happened. They all happen the same way. They unfold the same way because people react the same way. So right. I'll just mention this now. I'm probably jumping way ahead to my... <laughs> conclusions outline notes here and it connects with something else we read i don't think you've had a chance to read yet scott we both saw recently a few nights ago the terrific documentary by james fox about the neighborhood encounter alien encounter which is that happened in brazil yeah that is truly amazing folks if you haven't seen this is in uh, virginia brazil yeah moment of contact that's it. yeah moment, moment of, of contact. contact yes if you haven't seen it I'm sure it's available in a couple of places, but uh, I watched it on Apple TV. It's pretty great. It's pretty cheap mm-hmm. to rent. And 
to use a phrase that gets overused in our business, I would describe it as an earth-shattering documentary. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so it, 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 it makes you think, be, just yeah. because of the interviews they they got, it was a big deal down there, and and we only think that like, well, we got a Roswell that that was obviously uh, deformed half-human humanoids that were sent here by the weather balloon by the Russians to freak us out, whatever your theory is. But this could be considered Brazil's Roswell because right. a craft crashed that appeared to be damaged and there were occupants. People would walk by them. I mean, they were just, <laughs> at least two, were huddled in a neighborhood and people, well, these three girls walk by them. Oh, here we go. We're going to tell he, the whole movie. No. Well, <laughs> look, this is, you know, this didn't happen last week. I'm not <laughs> I'm spoiling anything. Uh, yeah, but I don't think people in America know about it. Go find that documentary because it's uh, it's pretty fascinating. Here, this is nothing new. This has been described quite a bit. And I've seen this in comments from our own folks in the Facebook group. One aspect of this is the smell. Okay. So now when you want to talk about noxious fumes, what was described by this case was that these beings had a really noxious ammonia slash burning hair smell to them. So bad that apparently when they brought them into the hospital, that smell lasted for days. They couldn't scrub it out. It right. was so pungent. Right. Now, that's all I'll say about that. Watch the rest of that because it's it's fascinating. But what we have here is a commonality of, of this smell. And, uh, you know, there was a three-quarter inch documentary that was done a long time ago in the early 90s, I believe. And I just remember vaguely making notes about this. There was an artist who apparently was a friend of one of the nurses at the army base there when these beings came in. And I think I'm talking about Roswell. They came in and also a very horrible stench, overpowering with these beings was reported then. And this guy, he didn't see it, but he drew pictures of it because his friend, the nurse, the army nurse, described what came in. Similar hands that were seen poking out from a sheet. It's all these kind of tropes that keep coming up again. And, and again, you, you never really know. It's not proof. It's not even evidence. It's just a description and an anecdote. But the one thing that kind of is common here is the smell. And so tying this, looping this all back to the creature of Van Meter, if they shot it, punctured this thing, or excited it in some way, is that what they were smelling? A waste byproduct of this thing, or was it a defense mechanism, as we said in part one, like a stink bug? You excite it, you upset it, you puncture it, it gives off this gas that uh, makes you not want to follow it anywhere. Yeah, maybe. Or yeah, or is it just injured <laughs> and it's and yeah. it's bodily, you know, functions yeah. are being exposed in front of God and everybody. Well, you know what? I was going to explain my whole, well, it's not my theory, but the the whole, let's say, alien overlord bent on this thing. But I'll I'll wait to the end because that is, it's one of the big ones and the more frightening ones, if true. And it may explain all this stuff. But I'll just say here that it could be a waste byproduct thing, like you just said, Scott, like maybe if you heard it or whatever, it's just, that's what it does. Like any, even a grizzly gets in a fight, it just, like any animal, like, let's get rid of this waste right now, just to lighten our load. Or you scare something and... Literally, humans too. That, that yeah. <laughs> the guy who yeah. saw the mantis being in the river did the same thing. There's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just part of the bodily process where it's like, okay, let's get rid of some weight here in, in all of our horrific excitement. And maybe that's part of it in that it is a, uh, a reaction. I will say though, from the descriptions, my thinking on this is that I see it more of 
something like a defense mechanism, because it happened after he was shot, and it was so effective, knocked the guy out, he was able to get away. I would like to believe that it is something that is in the quiver of the Van Meter monster. Hello, everyone. I'm Christy, and this is Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. You know, some people will look at the story and bring up the Mad Gasser Matum, but the thing about that was, you know, yeah, that was happening, but that was by all accounts, that was a dude, like a skinny guy. Yeah, it was it was definitely jacket. more man. Yeah, that was a person. Yeah. You know, which Spring Hill Jack seemed to be like a person wearing a contraption, the Mad Gasser, just mm-hmm. a person who maybe had some weird fetish. And then we've got the Jersey <laughs> Devil, who was flying, definitely flying in the sky, probably the closest thing. Here's another interesting thing, and this was brought up in Lewis Foss and Nelson's book, Van Meter Visitor. It was mm-hmm. the Iowa airship sightings of 1897, which were right. kind yeah. of famous, actually, even outside of this. And there was a lot of folks who were talking about airships, and there's stories about airships in general from way before we were supposed to be flying. And and that's something I actually want to do a show on in the future. Because there was this whole guy, Captain Wilson, who came down and they, they, like said he needed water or something. And people were like, wait, what? How is this happening? Right. That might have been part of this flap. But whether it was or not, there is an article which those three guys referenced in their book, and I found an original copy of. And it's called, Was It the Airship? And this is from April 10th, 1897. And there's a whole section there about the airship, people seeing this object, which honestly sounds like a modern day UAP sighting. Yeah, yeah. But I'm going to skip that because that's not the part we're looking at. The part we're looking at of this article is a section called Joe Saw It. And so uh, listen to this section from this paper. This is, again, from the, um, The Courier in Waterloo, Iowa, Saturday, April 10th, 1897. This is a subset of that original article about the airships. Joe saw it. J.K. Joder, a West Side druggist, was going home about one o'clock this morning, and when near the corner of Washington and West Fourth Streets, was filled with wonder and awe on beholding what seemed to be a monstrous bat gliding through the air and coming toward him from the east. For a moment, all that he could see was an immense black object with what seemed to be eyes of fire. But as it approached and glided down into the road, he remembered what he had heard of and read of the mysterious airship and at once decided to investigate. He was too frightened to make accurate observations, but tells a very plausible story of what followed. Quote, I succeeded in approaching within about a hundred feet of the ship, end quote, said Mr. Joder today, and would have had quite a story to tell you, but for one thing, the sailors were all foreigners. I am quite sure they were Polanders, for they were small in stature and dressed in furs. They talked fluently, I suppose, but I couldn't understand a word. I could understand from their actions that they had stopped for repairs. It was also apparent that they were very hungry, but they said by the use of signs that they thought it would be of no use to ask for a handout in Waterloo, because Jack Casebeer didn't come down proper when they went over town a few nights since. The necessary repairs were soon made, and they were up and off, end quote. So I don't know what that is about Jack Casebeer or like a prior encounter, especially if they were speaking a language he didn't understand. I thought it was interesting. He said they were dressed in furs. But the other thing is interesting is at the beginning of it, he he describes a bat with eyes of fire. What is that about? (sighs) Yeah. People are seeing things more appropriate to the time. And that is part of the the idea. Are these people seeing things that in a way that they can understand? Is Is there a mind object link which lies somewhere between a spirit world, and a real physical world that we experience and and our consciousness. I agree and disagree with part of that. 
Mm-hmm. Because if you do read the part of the article I didn't read about the airships, yeah. it's not actually an airship in our definition of it. it they right. don't have the word UFO. They don't have the word airplane. So they're they're not necessarily describing like a blimp. I just want to make that clear. They're not. Oh, that's true. Yes, we should make that clear. Right. It's not. It's not exactly that's, uh, like the that. Airship is the word they have for this light floating in the sky because mm-hmm. it's, it's a ship, like a boat on the water, except it's in the air. So they're saying airship. I mean, here's the thing: is that they know what zeppelins and blimps look like, and right. when you see something like what was seen at Cisco Grove, that could be like a blimp with windows in the side of it. It was blimpy, like with a headlight on on the front of it. Remember that? And it's yep. uh, all these things are so interesting when you when you line them up, and it could mean absolutely nothing, or there could be a through line of meaning. That's to right. these descriptions. But well, yeah, so what Scott's saying is that not only is this outside of something you've never seen before because it's impossible, but you only have the words to describe later what you saw that are contemporary of the time. So that's lacking. It's finding that language when you don't know what the language is, which makes me wonder about where we're at now because. Mm-hmm. The sphere inside the box, and and this, for folks who don't know what this is, this is from the UAP hearings that they just had in Congress. Uh, So Lieutenant Graves, Commander Fravor, and then Dave Grush, who's the UAP whistleblower, they testified for two hours in front of Congress a few weeks ago. Look for that on YouTube because it's really worth watching, especially the description of some of these craft. But again, it's like even those naval aviators with all the experience they have don't have the language to describe what they're seeing now. And so when you think about that and you think about this stuff in the past, and then you think about our poor eyewitnesses in Van Meter, it's like, uh, I was, I don't know, it's a big bird had four feet and it was, there's nothing to compare it to. So just keep that in mind as we're going through this story. Every age, every generation thinks like, well, this is it. This is the, uh, you know, we're so advanced and this is, uh, we're at the height of knowledge and you are, you know, for human beings, that's, that's what you know at the time. So in our advanced state of our technology with jets and aircraft carriers and all manner of uh, very sophisticated aircraft, missiles, space technology, all that we have, and the very best pilots in the world, I will say, and they see something that is like, that. that's not ours. We don't have anything like that, that of course we know about. You have an idea of what kind of technology is possible. And it's not just that, it's what we know about physics. So here's yeah. what I, I would say is that, okay, well, these guys, you know, they're just not in on the uh, the black on black projects. They don't know what human beings can build. It's just secret stuff and they're flying it around them to get the reaction, which is ridiculous to me. Right. Okay. We know all the stuff and maybe we don't know what can be built, but we have a pretty good idea what's impossible with physics, right? How are these things breaking uh, physics in the sense of these creatures they are obeying some of the laws of physics as we know them. They are keeping within the rules of zoology, perhaps, that they seem to be physical beings, that they leave footprints. They don't seem to be affected by gunfire, but we don't really know, you know, we can't inspect them post-mortem to see what's really going on with that. We have the technology of the time that's only given to us, and I think they could do a pretty good description in 1903 of what this animal was. 
Well, there's a couple of other ideas here about what people might have been seeing or what they thought they were seeing. Could they have been confused? This comes back again to like when we talked about Kelly Hopkinsville, it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of old drunk country folks uh, who were attacked by owls. And it's no, that's not really what's happening here. There's these parallels with these stories. It's like, well, it's an owl. It's a sandhill crane. It's, Mm -hmm. you know, it's swamp gas. It's all of that kind of stuff. Your folks do talk about the turkey vulture. Right, right. Which is a huge bird. Um, and most people see them. I've got them, you know, up the street here. I saw one yesterday on a telephone mm-hmm, pole. Mm-hmm. They're pretty freaky looking and they have large wingspans. But again, they're not really foreign to anybody. And they are also not eight feet tall. And as True. you said, Forrest, they don't have a light on their head. The other thing I think is interesting that's kind of plausible if we weren't in Iowa is the California condor. I've seen this thing in person at the zoo it has uh, a huge wingspan, height, not so much. In fact, there's a picture of my son looking at one on, mm-hmm. we'll put it on the webpage for this episode. Also definitely has feathers. The taller birds, like the sandhill crane and other cranes that grow to be four and a half or five feet tall, they're skinny, like real skinny with skinny long legs. It doesn't sound, and again, they all have feathers. So like it hasn't for many other episodes where we talked about people being confused there's not a lot here to go on with. These folks know what wildlife looks like. They live out in the country in the early 1900s, and they're out and about way more than we are these days, folks. And they see stuff. And so they understand what's around them. So Forrest, if, if you're ready, I want to talk a little bit about some various theories here. Mm-hmm. There's a lot going on here. There's ideas you've heard before on our show, and then there's other ones that are a little bit deeper. We're going to stick to these top-level ones that are most intriguing to us in this situation. There's stuff you always have to touch on with something like this. Was this a hoax? Could it be a hoax for tourism? There's a couple of things to talk about when it comes to that. I think one of them is it would have to be a hoax perpetrated by the journalist, H.H. Phillips, because his article is the primary source for everything. And maybe if it was just him, Yeah, but why would all the top names of the most prestigious people in town put their names or allow their names to be in the article if the journalist was hoaxing it? It doesn't make sense, right? And then then the other idea is, well, what if he was tricked? And this is a theory that I came up with, you know, while we were researching part two here. They're all in different secret societies. Mm. (laughs) These guys are all like cross-mingling in the Woodmen of America and- With the uh, Odd Fellows. The the Odd Fellows and the Masons (laughs) and the, you know, Buckskin Boutonnieres or whatever you want to say. They're all in all these groups, you know. I can see a world where, because it sounds like something I might try to do with my friends back then. It's pretty easy to get bored. It was like, what if we all went in together? We convinced Mm -hmm. this journalist. We tricked the journalist into thinking that this thing happened here. We get this thing in the paper. We talk about it or whatever. We can make up a story because Peter accidentally blew the door out at the bank. We'll center it all around that or something. That is one thing where I'm just like, well, it depends on people's senses of humor and what sort of life they were living and, you know, the idea that they were all coordinating that. It seems like a long shot, but for me, it's as much of a possibility as as some of the other ones that I think aren't possibilities. Like a practical joker. I think, you know, we've talked about this with the Patterson-Gimlin film. We've talked about it with a lot of cryptid ideas. Being a practical joker is taking your life in your hands because in a lot of places in the United States, and you're going to get shot if well, you show up in somebody's this backyard. Thing. Yeah, I, that, that's the other thing that kind of knocks that down. Yeah, they they yeah. fired at it repeatedly. And so it's not a dude in a suit. Right. If you're going to allow that there was something actually there for them to see. The other thing is that as the contemporary of a few of the other articles were saying at the time is that 
the townspeople, the leaders of Van Meter, were pretty peeved at the response they got because, of course, it made them look ridiculous. Right. And these are not exactly. ridiculous people. They, it's not. It's not like eight P.T. Barnum types all running the town of Van Meter. Right. They just said what they saw. These are plain spoken folks, and they relayed what uh, what actually happened, what they saw, and what they went through. And of course, they got the response that they didn't want because that's the natural response to this: is that what are you drinking over there? Like <laughs> what's in the water in Van Meter? Or it's ergot poisoning. They all went crazy for a week. Right. The idea, though, is that people did not flock to Van Meter. As we've seen them with the population, it's been reported. It kind of fluctuated, but it's it went down over the you know, 130 years. So the idea, though, is that it didn't really attract a lot of people, and they didn't prepare for that either. There weren't a lot of people touring through town, not like Villisca, where there was a huge turnout for a small town because it was such a sensational and horrible story. For folks that don't know, that was a, a axe murder situation in a house. In a right. That, yeah. that story appealed to the most purient parts of people's nature. And of course, we all like true crime now. They just didn't have TV. So they that's what they did. They, they flocked to that place, especially for the funerals. And you think like it's a little tiny town, but that's what drew people because... It's a real thing, and it's also very scary because that can happen to you, whereas people don't think that they're going to get a visit from a pterodactyl. Yeah. So here, yeah, I don't. that doesn't really hold a whole lot of water that it was a hoax. Same thing with Kelly Hopkinsville, although now there's a festival, <laughs> and, there's a, and right. there's a Van Meter festival. I think that attitude has changed from what I'd read over the years by the local folks where they're like, yeah, we don't really care to keep remembering this. And then finally, it's just like, well, you know, that speaks to, uh, again, to it not being a hoax. And then eventually it's like, ah, come on, lighten up. It's a little fun thing. It will draw in some people and and give money to uh, the local businesses. And we could all use that. So it's not a horrible thing. Just lean into it, as they say, and have some fun. All right. So this comes up again. Talk about trotting them out. It's the Tulpa situation. <laughs> you are trying them all out. Yeah. No, I didn't, you know, I don't want to go too deep on this because this does play into no, no. my conclusions a little bit. Okay. But gotcha. Gotcha. I am interested in the idea of how collective consciousness and, you know, the idea of this being created by human thought. I got a whole long philosophy on that. I don't want to mm -hmm. actually call it a tulpa because that's going to a specific methodology that I don't think True. necessarily applies. It know? sounds to me, if you're going to apply that kind of a thought beast, yes. uh, maybe more like an egregore. Right. Uh, a community thing that is either intentional or unintentional. We'll circle back on that. I do, of course, want to talk about portals and ultra-terrestrials and the holographic universe. They all kind of work together. Ultra-terrestrials is a John Keel thing, you know, trans-dimensional beings, um, which it's funny in the, in the book on page 49, Noah Voss says that to go to ultra-terrestrials is a lazy response to complicated data, <laughs> which I thought was a great quote. Hey, I'll buy <laughs> that, sure. Yeah, yeah, it is a little bit, but what's fascinating about it is the, is the idea of these things that come and go from our world in a non-traditional mm -hmm. way. Extra-terrestrial doesn't work. It's not just, you know, hey, let's get in the car and go to Earth. We're done at Earth, and now we're well, going to get in the car and go back to yeah. say, reticuli. There's something more to it. That's true. And I, that's why I say it's not a counterpoint, but it's an additional road of thought down a bigger rabbit holes and very well done and covered. Kevin Lee Nelson, who does a lot of the thinking, I'd say, or the the framing of it, is more like an essay that's, an, that's chapter 13 about uh, that idea of reality and ultra-terrestrials and John Keel and Jacques Vallée, and all these people, and, and their, their ideas that came decades before all this, it may solve some answers. 
in right. a way that just thinking, well, again, that this is how we like to think about stuff because it makes more sense to us and it's easier. I don't fault anybody for it. But that flying saucers come from a star system, that Bigfoot is just un, uh, unseen, whatever it's eating to keep that large frame going, we just don't notice it yet. That these are just things that we have not paid uh, attention to and have been invisible to us, not coming from a thin place between the veil and like inside the veil, in the veil itself that is between our physical reality world and a, a spiritual world or a interdimensional world or just another dimension. There are things that are known and there are things that are unknown. <laughs> and in between those things, there are doors. I want to be one of the doors. <laughs> I'm sure I'm misremembering that quote, by the way. Oh, I, yeah, you're very close. I was, uh, <laughs> I was tracking it. I was gronking it. The idea, though, is that it's easier to just put a place at a time. You know, like, that's where they came from. It's weird, but there you go. Or they came from a mine. Yeah. And they live down there and they eat fish with no eyes. Well, yeah. so let's talk about that. <laughs> okay. That brings us to my next theory I wanted to touch on was the hollow earth, which we haven't mentioned mm. in a long time, Yeah, I will probably. say. And how do you live in a cave? Because the cave is big AF, mm -hmm. hollow mm -hmm. earth. They go down mm -hmm. in the cave. They're down there. They're flying around. That's why they got wings. They got a light so they can see and fly in the dark. I don't know. So that would be the idea is maybe the coal mine leads to a right. giant subterranean cave. There's a reference in the Van Meter Visitor book to uh, a, a cave that was found that had been sealed for, and I know about this one, I yeah. think it was in France or somewhere. It was sealed for, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer. It had its own little ecosystem in it. Oh yeah, they that's what I'm saying about the fish with no eyes. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You just said it. That's right. So it's like, that could be happening, I guess, but it doesn't seem like something would get that big in there. There doesn't seem like there'd be enough to eat. Yes, but now we're back to, I, I, I'm sorry to do this to you, brother, yeah, but yeah. now we're back to Middle Earth, the Hollow Earth, Lemuria, being less of a physical space-time space in the space with the time, right. in the time with the Earth, and it's a big cavern kind of thing, and there's a sun, I guess, in there. That's where the Vril come from. I don't know. But <laughs> it's easier for me to think about it, and lazy, yes, I know, that if it's more of an interdimensional space... Right. That it is an overlay. It's like the notebook, the electronic notebook I'm using here now is that you can do different layers, right? right. So I can create right. a layer. It's like, oh, I've, I've taken some notes uh, with this uh, this fake pen here. And if I want notes on top of that, can I can pop in and out that you can see or not see. I can put another layer in. Right. Right. And so right. it's like, oh, let me just click this. And then like, I had some other thoughts, but I, I don't want to cut out all I've written here and move it down and mess that up. Let me just put another layer in there. Right. That's how I think about this is that down in the earth, there's another layer of reality. That's all this information and creatures and weird stuff happening. And sometimes it fades back in or we dip into it accidentally right. or some beings, and it could be text here in the case of this uh, notebook, or it could be creatures that just pop back into the, through the layers. Because I thought, you know, when I was a kid, it's like, that doesn't make any sense. What do you mean there's a giant cavern? Like, we know that the earth has a, a crust and a mantle and it's hot and molten down there. And where are these people going to live? Is it dark? It's like the Eloy. And the, it's like yeah. time machine. <laughs> there's people living down there, but it's all, it's a built mechanical world down there. And right. they're really pasty and beastly and they come up and they eat the, the poor flowery 
evolutionary hippie kid children that uh, is horrible. But you have uh, Morlocks, yeah, that's right, and uh, who, are, who are really horrible beings, and they live in a in a weird underground mechanical world. Okay, that's 1890s thinking or whatever, the turn of the last part of the 19th century. That's how you think about stuff when you don't have these big highfalutin ideas, uh, superposition ideas, spooky action at a distance. We didn't have all that yet. So now we do. And that's how I tend to think of it is something that is happening that is maybe on the subatomic level. I'm right there with you. I'm right next to you on that. In fact, that's where I'm going with this. Um, Oh, okay. But let's come back down to earth here for a second on the surface of earth. Let's talk a little bit about eyewitness error. You know, the idea that these guys, again, that's coming back to them being mistaken the Kelly Hopkinsville idea where, oh, that's a bunch of owls and you're wrong. But the other thing about eyewitness error, and this is something gets brought up to us frequently in comments and in emails, people say, well, you guys always rely on eyewitness testimonies when we talk about why we believe in the Japanese capture theory of Amelia Earhart going to Saipan. A large part of that story is because hundreds of people that lived on Saipan saw somebody that looked like Amelia Earhart there. And so that's an eyewitness testimony. Over 200, yeah, uh, yeah tomorrow. But it's hundreds of people. So yeah, we're going to take that into account. But the other thing about eyewitness testimony is that, yeah, people get details wrong. When you're mistaking things, like say you're an eyewitness to a crime, the kinds of things, you you might be mistaking height. You might be mistaking the right. clothing. You might mistake the color of the car that ran over somebody or Mm. whatever accident happened, you get details wrong, but the details are sort of wrapper details in a way, most of the time. What happened here, though, is we've got these folks that witnessed this thing. They're seeing a lot of the same stuff at different times. They're seeing uh, giant wings. They're seeing the light on a horn that this Mm -hmm. thing has. They're experiencing similar stuff. So these folks are all reporting the same overall details. And on top of that, there's not a lot of discrepancy. Like when you go back to Spring Hill Jack or the Mad Gasser or like other stories that we've looked into in the past, the descriptions are wildly different between people. Oh, well, Mm. it shot fire. No, it wasn't fire. It was acid. No, I smelled something. And that's, (laughs) you get that a lot of the time with the kinds of stories we cover. This one, it's not the case. They're all saying the same thing. They're all saying the same thing. So I thought that was really interesting in terms of eyewitness mistakes with regard to the testimony. Well, now that you've mentioned, and we are at the section for eyewitness fallacy, fallibility, and certainly that is a thing. We believe, obviously, that can happen and does happen. It's a known thing. I think it's also, I don't know if I'd say lazy. It's an easy excuse. It's facile to to use as a blanket to just cover up all this stuff under that label. And I just want to repeat this uh, little blurb that we got here because I also listened to our brothers over at Graveyard Tales, Adam and Matt. They covered this same story about a year ago, and we all do it a little differently. And they also had uh, a point of contention with a statement here that I think I read in part one. This quote comes from the Des Moines Register. And it's one of the main articles you'll find. There's not a whole, like you said, there's not a lot of whole modern articles about this other than the festival that happens every year, which seems like a lot of fun. The article goes on to state, others take a more scientific approach in their skepticism. Matthew Sharps, a professor of psychology at California State University, Fresno, researches eyewitness memory and says one person's account grows as it is passed on. My side thing is here. Yes, I, be- I do believe that. Quote, the story becomes part of the memory. Obviously, these things aren't real, but people really see them. 
So they behave towards them as though they are real. They are eyewitness memory errors. End quote, he said. The article goes on to say, people with tendencies towards depression, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, or dissociation are more prone to see UFOs or creatures, his research shows, and the encounters can be harmful. Getting back to his quote, it can be a life-changing experience. They go around telling people and they think you are crazy. So now I've got to prove Bigfoot is there. Now I'm driving around with American Bigfoot Project printed on my van and telling my wife I'll be done as soon as I find Bigfoot, end quote. And Adam had a problem with that, and I do too. So <laughs> I don't know how you feel about it. But just, I mean, look, I, I'm not going to disagree with a psychologist. Obviously, they've done their study, but obviously he studied cases. But as we know, you can study the cases that prove your point. And there is, there is definitely bias, as we just saw with Avi Loeb. In Oumuamua, uh, and that you can uh, take the research and uh, skew it to how you want or see the things in the data you want and kind of discard the other stuff. That's also part of human nature, and I'm sure Professor Sharps would agree. But to say, quote, people with tendencies towards depression, attention deficit, hyperactivity disorder, dissociation, you know, those are the kinds of people that really see UFOs all the time and creatures. It says, Whatever. well, to me, it's like you're kind of, are you saying then all these people have a mental problem, if not an illness, then a little thing they're going through, which, you know, that enabled them to see these things. Because here's the other thing that I didn't really understand. And, and again, this is taken, you have to understand as well that this is uh, a report done by a reporter and it could be out of context. There could be more that Professor uh, Sharp said, but the quote here is that the story becomes part of the memory. Obviously, these things aren't real, but people really see them. What does he mean by that? Are then these people hallucinating? They, if he's saying they're really seeing these things, what kind of mental condition allows that? Other than NMDA, Inceptor, Encephalitis, right? Say it, Scott. Anti-receptor NMDA encephalitis, I think. Yes, it's it's all in there somewhere. Maybe not the right order, but that's uh, that's what we're talking about. It's like, that's a real condition, and it's serious. And you're actually seeing something. What he's saying here is that well, people who are a little I don't know, they're yeah. And again, they got uh, they got ADHD. Maybe they're depressed. That those are the kind of folks that report this stuff. And uh, we know that not to be the case. We're seeing that now in Congress and people coming forward. And but we're also seeing, as you know. People also trying to sway the conversation, coming out with articles saying like, oh, this guy's got PTSD. You know, we're not going to say it, but yeah, yeah. maybe he's not yeah. totally trustworthy. That's all I'm going to say now, but that's obviously what we're seeing here in the media. So what I'm asking though is that, okay, what are you saying here? If they're really seeing these things, are all these people hysterical. And that quickly gets to my other point. You can tune into episode 233, as Scott so eloquently titled it, what it wasn't, or how I learned to stop dismissively categorizing potentially paranormal events as mass hysteria. What it was, I think his best and <laughs> longest title ever, which I love. So Definitely I love that, but, yeah. but I, you know, it's okay. It's a little scientific. It's a little academic perhaps. There's a bit of psychology and sociology in there, but I'm so glad we did this because it is, it is such an old, yeah. tired chestnut 
of everybody pointing to. It's like, yeah, just mass hysteria. Also, it's sexist. It started out, you know, focused on women losing their yeah. minds. Like, you're like, oh, they're all, they're just hysterical. They're hysterical. They're hyster- you know, that's why it's called hysteria. Hysterectomy. <laughs> it's Do a, the math. I mean, you know, so they're, they're putting you down. So all, everyone that's trotting that out, stop. Well, look, just, I think just medically, stop. just in the psychological field, it's an antiquated term and doesn't really facilitate or do this condition justice. Well, here's it's the thing. thing. All these it's people that, that go through this, they're not hysterical. They're not running down the street naked, shooting guns into the air. Right. Yes, they are right. scared. Yes, they believe that something is there that is... Uh, should be dealt with. Yeah, they might be jumpy. Sure. <laughs> well, you get the, Everybody's a little yeah. jumpy when there's a tornado warning right. or whatever, but that doesn't mean that we all ran outside and see a tornado. Yeah, you have this, these labels that are easy. So people say, War of the Worlds, mass hysteria, Dancing Plague of 1518, uh, ergot poisoning. People are, they got mass hysteria. The windshield pitting mystery of 1954, the mad gasser of Mattoon. The other thing that like people like to point to and again, not fully understanding this. And I've seen the, even with uh, sociologists pointing to this because it is in the academic literature in part of the, the canon is the phrase social contagion. Oh, somebody saw something and they claim they did. And then suddenly people are whipped up into a frenzy and then they're also seeing it and they're describing it the same exact way. And then that, you know, two friends, yeah. uh, I told two friends and they told two friends and not only are we all using Wella Balsam shampoo, we're all seeing the same crazy beast hopping from rooftop to rooftop. Right. Or gassing us or right. running over our tennis shoes and tearing them. It's an easy thing to label this, uh, put a wrapper on it and just get it off the shelf because we don't want to talk about it anymore. Well, that term and that idea came around in the 1930s by some sociologists, and I'm talking about social contagion. It's a model. It's a theory. Okay. It's not proof. But when things like that happened and the decades after, uh, and again, it's when someone sees uh, one thing, then several people claim to experience the same thing. Others hear about it. They start seeing the same thing. Soon it all spirals into an epidemic of vast numbers of people all testifying to the same weirdness, but with no real cause. You haven't captured a beast. You can't point to anything except maybe a footprint, except maybe a photograph. And so it's a potentially antiquated term as I, as I wrote here, mass hysteria is, and it's modern equivalent would be mass psychogenic illness. I'm no psychologist. I'm not even playing one here. Is that term though I'm asking, is that accurate or helpful to this? Because all these people, are they hysterical? Are they ill? Did they get better somehow? Do they keep seeing things? Do they have to be committed? Well, no. And so that model Again, that Dr. David L. Miller, and again, this is all debatable. We've always said this from the beginning of doing our show. They don't all agree with each other. Uh, take any subject in, in the news, especially these days. They don't all agree with each other. They don't like each other's theories. There's a lot of competition. Well, you have to do a little bit of reading and come up with something that you agree with. And what I came up with from doing a little reading and poking around here is what sociologist David L. Miller came up with especially because he studied, he was there, as we said earlier tonight, studying the Enfield monster case. And he came up with an idea, a framework to think about these things, these events, that he termed collective action and behavior. And that's opposed to mass hysteria, where people just lost their minds suddenly, and then they got them back again after the monster went away. But suddenly they were crazy for a bit, and they had PTSD and depression and 
all these things. And that's usually, you know, we, because it, it's between the lines, which I don't like is painting these people's like, well, we know I'm not going to come out and say it, but you know, they're a little kooky <laughs> or as a, yeah. uh, you know, Spectre Clue said, like, wait, well, he's a little bit now, now, which is just, yeah, well, I don't want to say it, but we know, right. I don't have, don't make me say it again, quickly to talk about what collective action behavior is because you can lay that framework. And, uh, oh, something that you found too, Scott, is frame analysis. How do we think about these things? How's the information laid right. out? How is it presented? And what is the narrative that is being formed here? Because we all do it, left or right or in the center. Right. That's how we come to think about things. Well, what Professor Miller was saying, and you can apply this here, is that when something like this happens, let's not debate whether or not there was a monster. Let's just say there was a weird sighting and it's by somebody credible, whoever it is. Well, what happens is the same pattern. This is from the abstract very quickly, uh, just you know, summing this up here is that that so social contagion idea was posited by Bloomer and Clapp back in the 30s. Their position is that what I just ex described, you have a sensory experience that's unusual and then people kind of behave the same way where they just get whipped up and they just repeat the same thing. And then everyone's doing it because it's, it's the fun thing to do. Well, what he says is that this social contagion approach doesn't adequately account for all the things that happen within a small community like that even when it comes to collective behavior. Most of these problems stem from the assumed discontinuity between collective and institutional behavior. And what he's talking about here is that you're talking about a group of people and then institutional means the authorities because you didn't really have it in Villisca because there's like one sheriff. Right. That's why they brought in the Pinkertons and these, because he wasn't equipped to, to investigate that which is probably why that guy got away with it so easily all over the Midwest. The other thing that you don't have here is that you don't really hear much about law enforcement. You hear about the town leaders coming together. It's like, we got to do something yeah. because we're all freaked out. We're scared. We got families. It's not just burglars. We have to do something about this. Well, what are we going to do? At the very beginning, yeah, it's like, maybe these are burglars. I'm just going to stay up all night and keep watch. And I got a shotgun. And if somebody comes in here trying to break into the bank, I, I'm going to take care of it. That is part of what I would call probably institutional behavior, where the alternative approach, though, was that there's communicative processes. So what happens here quickly is that somebody saw something, somebody respected, Griffith said, hey, something weird happened. I saw this coming home at 1 a.m. I may have been seeing things, but I swear this happened. You're like, oh, okay, well, that guy's not a kook. Well, let's just see what happens. And then as it progresses over the next five nights, more people see the same thing. And now it's like, okay, this thing is real. We're going to accept that this thing is real. Now you have a plan of action by the community. It's a small town. As this story circulates and as people come to believe it, it's not like now 50 people are seeing this until 50 people did see it. All who they're going to tell me they're all now hallucinating. Well, possibly, but that would be a mass forced illusion. That's another way out there thing is if you're all seeing, it's like, are you seeing yeah. that? Yeah, we're all seeing this and we're all shooting at it. We're not just imagining it. We're all in one group here seeing the same thing together. Now you're saying uh, you're going to propose that they're all uh, having a, a fugue state where now they're hallucinating the same thing. Well, that's pretty way out there. So this is what Miller is saying is that, okay, let's disregard that. People react the same way and they're not crazy. They're not, they haven't lost their minds temporarily. But they all react the same way in that once you do that, an order has to be restored. That's the main thing here. That's the mythical part of it is that you need to get rid of the monster. Or as they said in the, in the article, to rid the earth of this thing. Why? Because we need to get back to our lives. This thing can't be popping up every month. We have to right. do something about this. 
a hoax or not. Just stay up all night, uh, three nights a week, waiting for this thing to return. Something has to happen. So in his case study, though, when it comes to a respect for uh, unusual sensory experiences, which is what the sighting of this monster is, the mobilization happens the same way. It's the pitchforks and torches, as we said with Enfield. And in this case, it's guns, yeah. every gun yeah. that they had in town to sink a Spanish armada. Right. And mass preoccupation, which means it's not just going to be four people going after this thing. We're all, all the able-bodied men are coming after this thing because we have families, we have wives, we have uh, children. We, we got we to gotta do something. We have to protect them. So it's an alternate perspective, which I don't think, again, social contagion or mass hysteria does justice to at all. You're plugging all that theory back into this story, and it works for every story. And moving forward, we're just going to have to say, you know what, listen to the Enfield monster, listen to the Van Meter monster part two, because this gets wrapped around these things whenever these stories come up, That because the people that are trying to figure out what it isn't have the same need for cognitive closure that we have trying to figure out what it is or what it might have been. So they're throwing everything they've got at the wall. We're throwing everything we've got at the wall, but some of the stuff doesn't hold up. And and probably ours doesn't hold up at all because it doesn't have really any science behind it. <laughs> well, these, <laughs> but, well, these are but, impossible to study. That's, that's what I'm saying. Well, maybe that's what Professor Daniel L. Miller is saying is that, look, we there's no Enfield monster here in a cage for us to study, but we can study how people reacted to it, which is an integral part of all of these stories. I've always said this. It's like, it's not just the paranormal, freakish, unusual sensory experience, as a sociologist might say. It's how people react to it. So again, what I, what I like about the Van Meter story is that it was seen by so many people in that way. And that was kind of the end of it, but not really, because as you go to talk to people, as Chad Lewis did, is that, oh no, there's the, people don't like that area around the tile, <laughs> around the brickyard, as they call it. Some people don't, some people don't care at yeah. all. But there's something about yeah. the area that's got a little vibe to it, and it still felt. That's an interesting thing that you bring up, because what about the idea that this thing is, you know, in the traditional paranormal sense, what if it's some kind of ghost or some kind of uh, connection to the area around yeah. the plant? Because the, the word is that at the tile plant, there's things that throw bricks, like a phantom. <laughs> they call it the phantom brick thrower. Yeah. So folks that go down there and are having bricks thrown at them from the tile plant, which it was also a brick factory. They call it bricks. In fact, in that the story that we read at the top, they were calling them bricks, but that was all for the irrigation ditches, if you remember the poem mm -hmm. that we read in part one. So that's an interesting idea. Is it somehow connected to that? Is it a demon? Which is something, again, that Lewis Voss and Nelson talk yeah. about in their book. They mentioned some great books in there, uh, some of which we've referenced on the show before, including Jacques Vallée's Messengers of Deception. And uh, then one book I hadn't heard of, Forrest, I don't know if you'd heard of it, that they mentioned, Daimonic Reality, A Field Guide to the Other World. Have uh, you ever heard of that book? It's not immediately familiar. Yeah. I think other people have mentioned it, but certainly the idea of the daemon, daemon, of the, uh, as the Greeks termed it, not so much the Christian or the the post-pagan uh, concept you know that being a demon of something of the of the, of the right. dark more so a consciousness that resides in the uh, as we just were talking about a few minutes ago the intermediary between our consciousness and real reality and maybe the higher spiritual beings the gods these things are reflective yes. their consciousness uh, I mean they, they sound a little bit like uh, to me of entities or sludge entities or elementals, maybe. You talk about fawns, 
satyrs, nymphs, all these woodland creatures perhaps that reflect humanity's most base and primitive thoughts and feelings and urges as a reflection of us. And also the trickster thing, the pan thing, the green man of the woods, all these things are maybe of the D-A-I-M-O-N variation, not so much the horrible, ridiculous gods, like the Greek gods and their ridiculous behaviors, (laughs) the Roman gods, that was just so capricious and unpredictable as a way of explaining the capriciousness of human behavior and the bad things that we do. It's like, well, they do them too, but they, you know, just, just going around disguising each other and attacking each other and human beings as well. This is something in the middle that we're dealing with more on a day-to-day basis, perhaps, and have gone through every iteration of human culture and can be found in every culture, can be found in every age. And by the way, that last book I mentioned, Daimonic Reality, that's by Patrick Harpur, H-A-R-P-U-R. Links in the show notes. But yeah, no, that's the same thing. And that's actually what Nelson says on page 103 of the Van Meter Visitor. He says, intelligences that exist somewhere between our Mm -hmm. physical world and the world of spirit. There's a suggestion that we are manifesting these things, and that's why they make no sense Or they're almost like a dream where they make some kind of sense to the witness in the moment, like the flying nuts and bolts lantern UFO that Woody Derenberger saw during the 1967 Point Pleasant Mothman flap. Again, listen to our Mothman series for more (laughs) on that. Or any of the things that folks see that defy explanation from Sam the Sandown Clown to Terry Lovelace seeing tiny monkeys that tried to get him to leave his house when he was a kid. That's from our Devil's Den shows. Anyway... Could this thing be something like that? Some kind of demon in the traditional sense of the word. Right. Because again, we don't do very well in thinking about these kinds of things. That's why we like easy labels and physical things, nuts and bolts, seams on craft. What we can't deal with very easily is the paradoxical nature mentioned in this chapter, that things exist and do not exist at the same time. They are helpful and unhelpful friendly, cruel, trickstery, beneficial. You're whipping us around. We can't stand this stuff. We can't take this. What do you do? Just pick something. <laughs> we know to avoid yeah. you. We'll yeah. do that. But sometimes you're helpful and sometimes you're friendly. If you leave a little treat out for us and some tobacco and honey cakes, we'll help you. But then we might play a trick on you anyway. You might get disappeared and enter into our fairy realm and come back 300 years later. We have a hard time dealing with all this and we have a hard time making sense of this, but that's what they're talking about here is that it's real and not real at the same time. And it's hard for us to wrap our heads around that because we're used to the real and we'd like things to be real. You know, it's funny because I've written this elaborate conclusion and you're saying all kinds of things that are interwoven through well, it. I love it. You're setting me up and you don't even know what I'm going to well, say. Well, I, so, I, I, maybe you I, do. I'm just a, a yeah. very vague yeah. kind of a thing. But, you know, no, we read the same materials, but we have also come to think similar. We always say this. We disagree just enough on on some ideas to keep it interesting. But but our in our journey, which is what this is, and I think we're all going through this, certainly that's how it's described by Chad, Noah, and and Kevin, is that it, this is a little bit of a journey for themselves as well, as we all are to figure out what's going on here. Hi, I'm Brad Middleton. If you see my girlfriend and I on a road trip, then we're listening to Astonishing Legends. Now let's get back to the show.
All right. So moving on, uh, we would be remiss if we didn't mention the fact that this is right on the Raccoon River and right at the spot where it splits into two branches in Van Meter. And in fact, as we said in part one, that's where the very first person built a home that eventually would lead to the town. And I think they can't even find that guy's name, but they know there was a house there right where the river, it's like almost like a peninsula and the river splits into two places. Again, you guys know me. I found it on <laughs> Google Earth. We'll have it pinpointed because it's actually right where the mine is. Newsflash. That's where the mine is. And so, again, we're back to water mm-hmm. and confluence areas and ley lines. And by the way, I-80 runs right past oh, here yeah. So next time you're cruising on the interstate, you might stop by. All of that stuff is happening there. And, you know, of course, it's easy to be like, well, it happened spooky near the rivers. Because, of course, people mm-hmm. are going to live near water. Because sure. you <laughs> can move trade <laughs> yeah. that way and you can drink it and you can farm with it and all that stuff. So, yeah, we're acknowledging that. But there is this idea of that kind of stuff uh, being a nexus for events to happen of a paranormal nature. So Also a- uh, mythology, you know, like we just said, water nymphs, right. uh, woodland nymphs, the water is, it's the giver of life. It issues forth yeah. with all kinds of uh, strange mythical creatures all throughout the history of humanity in every country. The yokai, the water yokai, the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> little lizard people, yeah. And if you feed off of life energy, you're going to go where the life sure. is, which is down by yeah. the watering hole. It's all part of it. You can't, you can't, you can't get rid of it. But then there's a uh, there's strange things that roam the dry desert sands. That's true. Every place has its own mystical kinds of things, and every culture does. But that's the question here: is that uh, is this leading to some that something more overarching that spawns all this stuff that's just an overlay and uh and feeds this these kinds of ideas to us and we just interpret them throughout the ages in the way that we can at the time well the other thing that comes up a lot is when you're looking around online and people are talking about this is the idea that this was an alien being you know maybe we're trying too hard to make it biological maybe this was a stranded alien again going back to the uh the film that Forrest mm. mentioned earlier that we highly recommend moment of contact you can get that on apple tv that talks about the Brazilian incident in Virginia, you know, that talks about scared visitors. Maybe this was a scared visitor that uh, was stranded years ago from something that crashed or it fell out of its dimension mm-hmm. in ours and couldn't get back home because it left the keys. <laughs> uh, you know, who knows? And so now yeah. it's hanging out or hiding in a cave with uh, Van Meter, you know, and Van Meter Dude, the little tiny one. And they're trying to solve the mystery of how to get home. And of course, what do we do? We shoot at it, blow it up, barricade it in a hole. I don't know. It, you know, one of the things that's fascinating about it, though, is they when the time that it did get shot. And uh, by the way, earlier, I think I had said that it was um, Peter mm-hmm. Dunn or Clarence Peter Dunn that experienced the lost time. It wasn't him. It was um, it was Sidney Gregg. Sidney he Gregg passed who out. was the stupefying odor. And he's the one that passed out. Yeah. So. Just making my corrections <laughs> on the fly, people. It saves me from doing a pickup later. Again, you have to uh, wait to, to hear the whole episode before you write that uh, the email with a correction. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of people, They as soon as the mistake comes out, the email. That's okay, the because it just makes, it's just preventing you from having to send two, because we get an email after, like, oh, sorry, I that was, uh, I just listened to the first 20 minutes. I, oh, you said Yeah, I just, yeah. Uh, sorry about that. But anyway. <laughs> but anyway, you know, he the stupefying odor. What was that? Was it a defense mechanism or was it some kind of biological process gone wrong? And folks, we just want to think about this. Like, we think about the skunk ape. That's the Bigfoot down in Florida that's supposedly super stinky. Then uh, oh, there's yeah. the whole, 
yeah, there's uh, people, the smells come around. So, uh, and, and there's been some theories on that, uh, not only in Virginia and Brazil, but you tell me this though, Forrest, you had mentioned some theory to me based on that insane <laughs> biology post well, on Reddit yeah. that was written by a mysterious anonymous microbiologist or something who came on and posted this whole thing about how everything really works with alien biological DNA, yeah. et cetera. And he mentioned, or he or she, it's unknown, got into something about the the possibilities of how, like, gray anatomy works, right? No pun intended. Well, interestingly enough, and I don't know what I've uh, rambled on here before tonight about this, but it kind of tracks with other things that we've been seeing. Virginia, that incident as well, because you have eyewitnesses who were around this thing, which I, I found fascinating that the the girl's sense it was it was scared and frightened. And it's sitting there baking in right. the uh, Brazilian sun. And it's not used to that. <laughs> it's got, there's no AC yeah. and, uh, yeah. you know, it's used to on the uh, the spaceship and the, the bright lights and it's roasting. And when you look at the accounts from that case, it ended up in a hospital, let's say, and the smell was so pungent and so thick and caustic that they couldn't scrub it out. It was there for days and they couldn't uh, use that room, the examination room. But then you wonder about the Van Meter monster and it's like, okay, if they shot it and hit it, did it puncture some kind of film, some kind of outer skin? Is that what it secretes? As you said earlier, exactly. is it a reaction? Yeah. Maybe it wasn't a defense mechanism. Maybe it was yeah. wounded. Who knows? Maybe that's the stink that you that you smell. And if you're that close, it'll knock you out. Again, back to the Kryptonauts guys who thought it was some sort of defensive <laughs> fart, which I think <laughs> well, is interesting. Not, and I do know people uh, that have done hey, that. Hey, so. uh, yeah, you can clear an elevator, <laughs> certainly. Make people get off on a floor yeah, they didn't uh, intend. Ugh. Now that we've gone through all of this stuff, I did want to, I was particularly interested in the biological end of this. So I drilled down a little bit on some of the biological explanations, which I know people are curious about. So we're going to touch on those real quick. One is, what's the idea that maybe this is a bat? And I thought, well, yeah, what is the biggest bat in the world? Forrest was talking about that one, and I can't remember its name now, the one that has a crazy horse head, oh, which yes. is not the one that came up when I looked this up. We've talked about that one before. But there's one called the flying fox. And this is a bat that's about as big as a small dog. And what would you think if you saw a small dog flying through the sky, if you weren't expecting it? It'd be kind of cute. Out, yeah. But but <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but seeing it depends on where you live, if it, which is if it is in Australia or Asia, you're not going to see it. Iowa is not on the list. Uh, these flying foxes mainly eat fruit, nectar, and pollen. They can have up to a five-foot wingspan and weigh as much as two and a half pounds, which is big for a bat, but hard to confuse with something that was supposedly mm. eight feet tall. Even if the height estimate is wrong on that, the flying fox is not more than 16 inches long usually. So I don't think Sidney Gregg was off mm -hmm. by over six feet on his estimate. There's been some talk about, oh, well, you, you don't get that right. And I saw a long time ago on a really good episode of Fact yeah. or Faked. I used to love that show. About the, they're driving down a road because somebody said they saw this eight-foot tall, I think, Sasquatch or something. And they went back and built mm -hmm. models out in the field on the road and drove by, and everyone had to guess how tall it was, and people got it oh, wrong. Oh, yeah. A lot of, of people no, got it wrong. That's what, that's what they, and it was more of a normal height. You know, it doesn't change the fact that it was a hairy man. No, I've always, often thought about that when people say, like, it was exactly seven and a half feet tall. Like, well, that's from that distance, it's, yeah. If I was standing face-to-face -face with it, I could tell you that. I don't know. Or it was in front of the, one of those, you know, bars at the 7-Eleven well, door that tells you how height the yeah, thing is Yeah, that's what I'm saying. You go the bad guys, back to Dan. The Pommenmeyer, uh seeing a a strange little uh, humanoid, and and who knows what it was yes. again? It, <laughs> it's nothing um, 
Yeah, but he had the jersey bear. Well, ex- ex- so that's what I'm saying. Is that right? So you had something to gauge uh, how tall this person was. Yes. And like if it was just, if it was a little person, he was about, you know, three and a half feet tall, three feet tall. It's just, but the perception at the time, I think he said, it was it was not a little person. It was a, it just freaked him out. It was a tiny full-grown <laughs> Well, homunculus. With a cart, yeah. right? Didn't he have a cart? He was pushing he a little cart, anyway. dressed like a uh, minion. That's, the, that's from Missing Time, whatever that episode was. Anyway. Yes. Uh, Dan Povenmire, the creator, one of the co-creators of Phineas and Ferb. That's a fun episode. It is a fun episode. It's very interesting. What I would say, though, to your point, though, is it eight feet? Is it nine feet? Is it 10 feet? Well, it's not going to be four feet. Yeah, it's not going to be a foot and a half either. So here's the other thing about flying foxes. They don't use echolocation like most bats. They just use their eyesight like us, and they can see exceptionally well in the dark, though. I was wondering about the smell, though, that we were just talking about, the stupefying smell. Mm -hmm. This was interesting. I'm quoting from Wikipedia here. I know nobody likes that, but I'm doing it anyway. Flying foxes rely heavily on their sense of smell. They have large olfactory bulbs to process scents. They use scent to locate food for mothers to locate their pups and for mates to locate each other. Males have enlarged androgen-sensitive sebaceous glands on their shoulders that they use for scent marking their territories, particularly during the mating season. The secretions of these glands vary by species. Of the 65 chemical compounds isolated from the glands of four species, no compound was found in all species. Males also engage in urine washing, meaning that they coat themselves in their own urine. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I thought this was interesting that these bats were smell-oriented and they're doing all kinds of fun things with smells and taking pee baths. Uh, But (laughs) there's no reports of missing time. And, uh, uh, no. and apparently no need for a light to see things in the dark. And, oh, again, uh, they're way too small. Also, no beaks. Right. And uh, if one of them was chilling on a telephone pole, it would probably hang upside down. And also, they live in huge colonies. They're not loners. There so you go. That's the thing about, about those. So I thought that was important. A lot of people talk about the piazza. Pia, you know, The piazza uh, bird, not, yeah. Piazza bird, yes. P-I-A-S-A. This is pretty interesting. We have to mention it, of course. Here's a bit of an overview on it, uh, again, from Wikipedia. The Piazza is from Native American or Indian mythology, and it's based on these murals that were painted by uh, by them on limestone cliffs above the Mississippi River. Here is the original description of when it was first spotted and written down by Father Jacques Marquette in 1673. And this description is decidedly not politically correct, so please forgive it. I'm going to read it as it's written, though. While skirting some rocks, which by their height and length inspired awe, we saw upon one of them two painted monsters, which at first made us afraid, and upon which the boldest savages dare not long rest their eyes. They are as large as a calf, they have horns on their heads like those of a deer, a horrible look, red eyes, a beard like a tiger's, a face somewhat like a man's, a body covered with scales, and so long a tail that it winds all around the body, passing above the head and going back between the legs, ending in a fish's tail. Green, red, and black are the three colors composing the picture. Moreover, these two monsters are so well painted that we cannot believe that any savage is their author, for good painters in France would find it difficult to reach that place conveniently to paint them. Here is approximately the shape of these monsters as we have faithfully copied it. So aside from mm. being incredibly insulting to Native <laughs> well, Americans... Yes. There's another thing missing from this description, though, mm-hmm. and I don't know if anyone noticed it. Wings. Wings are not mentioned Right, in this. right. When you think about this, it's like you've got some kind of dragon thing with the face of a man, the body covered in scales, long red horns, long tail, fish-like in. The only problem is most of the ensuing origin history about the mural is now thought to have been made up by a Greek mm. and Latin professor named John Russell. Now, according to uh, what we now know, Russell 
might have invented the piazza or bird that devours men, which that was supposedly the origin term for it in the Illinois language, mm -hmm. might have made all that up. Uh, this terrifying creature, so fearsome that even the bravest Indian warriors couldn't defeat it. It was also seen as a spiritual force that could bring either good or evil to their communities. So that's all likely speculation. Russell admitted he made it up oh, for a, a furry book. So again, if you go back to Father Marquette's description, no wings. So all of it seems mm -hmm. like folklore. It doesn't necessarily change the fact that the original image was on the river and it obviously represented something, but it's not likely to connect with something that had wings or flew. So it's not connected to this particular legend necessarily. What's sad is the original illustration of is gone now. Yeah, There's yeah. a modern reproduction of it upstream, which I think does have wings, which they added later. But they think, as you referenced earlier, uh, Forrest, in this episode, that the original one may have been created by the Cahokian culture mm -hmm. around the year 900, current era. So That's what I'd like to believe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'd like to believe, too. Yeah. And it, So here's another thing I found. There's a cryptozoologist named Scott T. Norman. Mm who thought he saw a pteranodon flying overhead in Fresno, California in 2007. Wow. He says he was the most skeptical of the group of people he was with. He saw it fly over for about 10 to 15 seconds over Farmer's Field. It had a wingspan of 8 to 10 feet. Yeah. I think it was, what did I say? I think it was 1 or 2 in the morning or something like that. The 8 to 10 feet wingspan, that does match the California condor range, by the way. Yeah. But he said it was featherless and had bat-like wings. Uh, this area has a history of these things with sightings also in Selma, which is just southeast mm -hmm. of Fresno proper, mm. in 1891. And here's an article from Selma. This is pretty interesting. This is um, from the Los Angeles Herald, volume 36, number 107, August 5th, 1891. Two screaming dragons snap their jaws and show their teeth, six feet long and look like frogs. That's the headline. The Fresno sportsman now goes gunning for pterodactyls. These are dragons who live in carboniferous age but who forgot to get petrified when the Fresno man and woman went through that process for the special benefit of 19th century dime museum owners. <laughs> a letter from Fresno to the mm. San Francisco Chronicle of Monday tells the Munchausen story, and from it the following excerpts are taken. Fresno, July 31st. The report that two strange dragons with wings have recently appeared in the swamps east of Selma was at first regarded by many as a sensational story without foundation in fact. But after different persons at different places had claimed to have seen the strange creatures, it began to be thought worth investigating. The history of the unusual visitors so far as reported is as follows. The men who live along the swales and sand hollows east and southeast of Selma on the evening of July 13th heard strange sounds in the air just after dark, like the rushing of wings when some large bird passes swiftly through the air overhead. At the same time, a cry was heard, resembling that of a swan. Though enough different to make it plain, it was not a swan. But on that evening, nothing was seen. The sound of the rushing of wings and peculiar cries were heard at intervals for two hours, when about ten o'clock all became still. The last cries heard were far away in the direction of King's River. On Monday night, July 21st, Harvey Lemon and Major Henry Haight were out looking for their hogs that feed in the tools. As the men were returning to Selma, they were surprised to hear a strange strangling noise in the deep swale under the bridge. Does that sound familiar? Mm. Strangling noise. Mm -hmm. In a moment, there was a heavy flapping of wings, and the two monsters rose slowly from the water and flew so near the men that the wind from their wings was plainly felt. Mm. Mr. Haight described the dragons as resembling birds, except that they had no feathers and their heads were broad and their bills were long and wide. He judged that the expanse of their wings was not less than 15 feet. 
Their bodies were without covering. Their eyes were very large. Mr. Haight, and this is spelled like Haight Ashbury, mm-hmm. was not sure less than four inches in diameter for their eyes. J.D. Daniels of Sanger heard of the matter and on Wednesday went over to Selma and joined those who were going out to capture the dragons. Your correspondent, I guess that would be this reporter, mm. saw Mr. Daniels today and had from him the account of the searching party. It is better to give in Mr. Daniels' words. When I reached Selma, I found the company, which with me consisted of five persons preparing to go down to Hog Lake to set watch. This is a small pond of water and was considered as liable as any to be visited by the monsters. We drove out to the lake, and there being no brush convenient for a hiding place, we dug holes in the bank, and soon after dark, we took our places in the holes with our guns, ready to see what could be done in case the visitors put in an appearance. We remained there until three o'clock in the morning, and nothing of an unusual nature having taken place, we returned to Selma, somewhat disappointed. About 10 o'clock that day, Thursday, Emmanuel Jacobs came in and reported that the monsters had evidently been in Horn Valley, about four miles above the night before. They had killed a number of ducks, and the banks of the pond were strewn with feathers. We had no intention of giving over the plan of capturing the dragons, and Thursday night, two of us returned to watch, Mr. Templeton and myself. We secreted ourselves in the holes which we had made the night before and waited patiently with our guns, determined to secure one of the strange visitors at least should they make their appearance. About 11 o'clock, the cries were heard in the direction of King's River, seeming two or three miles away. The ominous yells drew nearer, and in a few moments we heard the rush and roar of wings, so hideous that our hair almost stood on end. The two dragons came swooping down and circled round and round the pond in rapid whirls, screaming hideously all the while. We had a good view of them while flying. Two or three times they passed within a few yards of us, and their eyes were plainly visible. We could also see that instead of bills like birds, they had snouts resembling that of the alligator, Mm. and their teeth could be seen as they snapped their jaws while passing us. Evidently, the dragons were trying to decide whether or not they should come down in the pond. They were probably examining if there was any food to be had, such as ducks, mud hens, and fish. At length, they came down with a fearful plunge into the pond, and the mud and water flew as though a tree had fallen into it. They dived and floundered around in the water, and as nearly as we could judge at the distance of 30 yards, they were about six feet long, and while wading in the water, they looked not unlike gigantic frogs. Their wings were folded and appeared like large knobs on their backs. Their eyes were the most visible parts and seemed all the time wide open and staring. They were very active and darted about among the tools and rushes, catching mud hens. One of these fowls was devoured at two or three chomps of the jaws. As soon as we saw a good opportunity, we leveled our guns at the one nearest us and fired. One rose into the air with a yell and flew away, every stroke of the wings showing immense strength. The other floundered about in the water till it reached the edge on the pond where it crawled out, dragging a long wounded wing after it, and started across the plain. We loaded our guns and gave chase. We soon lost sight of it, for it went much faster than we could. However, we were able to follow by its dismal cries in the distance. We followed it half a mile when it passed out of our hearing. The next day, a company went in pursuit and trailed it by the blood on the grass. It was followed three miles to the Juniper Slough, which it entered, and all traces of it was lost. Whether it is yet concealed in the tools or whether it has died is not known. Where it passed down the bank, it left several well-formed tracks in the mud. One of the best was cut out with a spade and after drying was taken to Selma where it is in the possession of Mr. Snodgrass. 
The mm -hmm. track was like that of an alligator, though more circular in form. It had five toes mm. with a strong claw on each. The track is 11 inches wide and 19 long. Wow. The most probable solution of the matter is that these dragons are solitary specimens of some geological animal supposed to be extinct. It most nearly fits the description of the pterodactyl, a weird nocturnal vampire half-bat, half-lizard that infested the vast swamps of the earth in the Carboniferous Age. The pterodactyl is described by geologists as attaining a size often four times as large as the eagle, while the bill became a snout, and its mouth was set with ghastly teeth that devoured birds, reptiles, and small animals that came in its way. It may be that this species of animal has not become entirely extinct, as has been supposed, but that these are veritable pterodactyls. It is now recalled what a strange monster resembling these was reported a few years ago in the vast swamp between Tulare Lake and Kern Lake. So... That is August 5th, 1891, mm. so it's not even uh, 12 years before our incident in Iowa. Creature's different, but still right. sounds supernatural and strange, and but but also very biological. Yes, that's what I was going to say. Very much so, or it sounds like a Ornithacarus, uh, something yeah. that is more uh, what we know from the fossil record rather than with right. a, a, a bumpy horn that shines a spotlight on you. Uh, it just, yeah, uh, that's why these are so fascinating of accounts because some of these are more, I mean, yeah, it's impossible. It's wild. Nothing should survive all that, but that sounds more natural. And also it was wounded apparently, right? It, uh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it had some effect. It wasn't as supernatural. It just was upa. <laughs> it was out of, yeah. Out of place, Out of place. Uh, yeah, artifact or animal, yeah. yeah. Uh, so it, it's just very odd, but but again, some of the things are, are the same, and then you wonder, are they coming from the same place or the same cause? This segues in nicely to the whole pterosaur thing. Mm -hmm. That's another thing I really wanted to look at. We talked about bats. We talked about that other incident. For those of you who might remember from 1999, there was a series called Walking with Dinosaurs that the BBC mm -hmm. did. And um, on episode four of season one of that, they had a show called Giant of the Skies. And yeah. they specifically referred to that as the one you just mentioned, Ornithocorus. Uh, but they may have meant to be talking about Tropoignathus, which, yeah. <laughs> but they're very similar. But uh, for complex yeah. off-topic reasons, there's a lot of scientific debate about which giant dinosaur bird belongs in what genera. I know. Here's I, I quickly my point. It, it, well, it was uh, terrifically narrated yeah. by Kenneth Branagh. And uh, yes, it yeah, was. very, yeah. very well done. And what struck me is how you can have a whole, or at least an episode of a nature documentary based on an educated speculation. Because all we know about them yeah. is from their fossils and and how right. and how birds react today. They have pieces of the skull, and, mm -hmm. and as we'll see, they have a little bit more now. But it, here, here's how this goes with Tropogonathus, which is currently the largest known pterosaur, which is a flying dinosaur. Mm -hmm. They're thought to have lived 145 million to 100 mm -hmm. million years ago. Fossils were first found in 1987, with more found in Brazil in 2013. And that one had a skeleton with a skull and a lot of the rest of the body. Just didn't have yeah. like the back right. feet. So that was a lot, yeah. which would have been way after the BBC show, by the way. But back to Brasilia. Yes, back to Brazil. This one had a long skull that would resemble a beak. And at the end had a protuberance that would change color slightly for mating. No lights. And the color, <laughs> it wasn't a lot of color. How do, and how do we know to, about the changing of the color? 
for mating? I don't know. See, I don't know. I don't know. I'd be curious to know. It may, it may spec- maybe it's the, they took it from the cassowary, which is no doubt descended. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Okay. Uh, for whoever was brave enough to get close to one. Going with that? When it comes to diet, these things ate fish, mm-hmm. just like a pelican. Right. At least that's what they think. So their food came from bodies of water, mostly not Iowa, not children <laughs> wandering too far from oh. their protective local yes. cultural centers. These giants were thought to weigh maybe 220 pounds, right. but with hollow bones and a 29-foot wingspan, they could fly. So it wasn't a piece of cake, as Forrest alluded to this mm-hmm. earlier. Now, the BBC special from 1999 said they were large enough that they likely had to wait until the afternoon to fly when the warm air currents were strong enough for them to get aloft. They couldn't just take off yeah. any time they wanted, like a tiny little bird Not at you see in your back. 1 a.m. in September yeah. 29th. That's what I'm saying, which, which brings another fair point. Uh, those nights, I think it was upper 40s and 50s during the Van Meter visitor sightings. One other interesting thing, pterosaurs had skin for wings, mm-hmm. flappy leather, yeah. as I like to say. No feathers, but a fine fur, they think. And the skin, this was interesting, and think about this until mm-hmm. I watched the BBC thing that Forrest and I were just talking about, is way more likely to get hurt. It takes a long time to heal. Yeah. It's harder to repair than feathers. So that's one of the reasons that birds are thought to have evolved to take over the skies. Feathers can come out and they can be regrown. When your skin gets injured, it's a bigger deal. Yeah, it's a bigger deal. And also that's how at least the smaller birds were able to find some shelter and cover in the thickets, the brush, in that it doesn't affect them quite as much. And if you are a big leathery thing, you got to be out, first of all, being exposed in the hot, hot sun. And out more so with the elements and closer to the water, and it just it had more problems. So the thing that's more efficient and smaller, easier to feed, easier to mate, that's going to survive. And I just saw a little blurb today how nature, uh, it was something unrelated, uh, how nature finds a way is that birds... Some birds are now making shelters, little fortresses out of these spiny things that are meant to keep them off signs. Oh, yes, I saw that <laughs> you too. See that? Like, so awesome. It's just like, they don't know what they are. It's like, well, you got a, a ton of these things, so I'm just going to pluck them off. I mean, I've had two, and they have a lot of power, especially with the beak. I've had two cockatiels. One, he pulled the nails. They were like, somebody in our house had put nails up uh, above the window sash you know on the wood the frame and so yeah. i think they were or maybe we had done it for christmas lights and then i was like what's he chewing on i looked and he yanked a nail out so <laughs> they're very powerful <laughs> small funny creatures and when you're talking about these types of beings was one in hibernation for 145 to 150 million years is it acting like a bird forefather a bird ancestor yeah. with the same characteristics? Is it something like what we can term a cassowary would do, which to me, again, with, with the uh, with the toe claw, sounds like a velociraptor. It's all very interesting. Yeah. And, and of course, a lot of people are interested in, in dinosaurs and, and that kind of stuff roaming around. And here, just imagine seeing one and <laughs> coming to a small Midwestern town uh, like you, but also all over the world, people are reporting these things. I was going to yeah. mention before I forget, uh, one of my favorite more recent sightings that was all over the news and may have sadly had a mundane prankish, well, talk about prankster. Remember the uh, F1 race in, was it Phoenix, where a shadow oh, yes. flew over? Yes. We've talked about yeah, it before. The yes. And here's what's yeah. odd about that. I mean... <laughs> It was so cool to see. And we're like, what the heck is is that? I mean, it looked like that pterodon-like shadow that flew over the Red Room in Twin Peaks. 
And the, the first yeah. one, which yeah. like captivated my attention over the curtains is like, one, where's that shadow coming from? What's backlit? What is that thing? And you hear you have it at a Formula One race. And then the explanation is like, hey, did you like our graphic thing? Wasn't that fun? It's like, what? what, oh, wait, right. what? what are you doing? Why would you think that was right. a good idea? Like, what were you... What was the point of yeah. that? Just a prank? You're trying to get our attention? Or was it somebody messing around with the Chiron machine? <laughs> Whatever they, you know, they could do a lot more than with the video and the graphics, as we all know now. If you watch a, a modern football game, they can paint stuff on the field, do all kinds of fun things. But to do that, it was like, it's a weird prank. Yeah. You seem to be angry about well, it. Well, I want an explanation. I want. I didn't uh, know there was an update on it. I just remember the clip. I didn't know there was Well, a they came back. It was a day graphic. or two or whatever. And I think it was just, that's what I'm saying. It was kind of, uh, it was unsatisfactory in that I think they just tweeted. And I don't even remember what they called. Did you like our big bird? Did you like our Thunderbird? Whatever yeah. that we showed. And it's like, right. okay, well, who did that? <laughs> like they, whose idea was that? And if, yeah. or are you yeah. just covering for yourself? Of course, the conspiratorial minded, myself included, on that case would say, well, what's the point? Like somebody was goofing around. It's like, yeah, that was, that was Fred in the control room. He's such a rascal. And he got this new thing and he was just goofing around with it. But it, it seemed to be more than just a, a layer. You know what I'm saying? It seemed to hug yeah. the, yeah. like a real shadow would. And you can certainly do that yeah. with After Effects, but it was live and on the fly. Literally. It was on. Like, it really happened. It was literally on the fly. There you go. Let's talk about the toes real quick uh, and about the plaster cast. Peter Dunn at the bank made plaster casts of a three-toed footprint. Unfortunately, those are lost to time. And also, we don't know the dimensions. But we know he saw three toes. Now, why is the plaster lost? According to Lewis Voss and uh, Nelson, they speculated about a few things that maybe it was on display somewhere downtown, which yep. is what you would do with this kind of sure. stuff back then. And the whole downtown burnt to the ground in 1911. Uh, so right. it could have been mm -hmm. that. Also, 1903 plaster wasn't exactly built to last 120 years. True. But maybe it's still in somebody's attic. I don't it's know. It's in the same box, the same shoe box, the very large hat box, let's say, that has the original Patterson Gimlin film on 16 millimeter. Color reversal. Yeah, right. Wait, uh, yeah, we know where that might be. I wonder <laughs> if they're going to get back to us about that. But um, what about the three toes? Now, if we wanted to say for some exceedingly bizarre reason, this thing was a pterosaur of some kind, like a pterodactyl or a pteranodon, there were a lot of different kinds over millions of years. So how could that possibility match up with the alleged footprints? Well, on February 11th in 2020, journalist John Pickrell wrote a story in Scientific American called Footprints Find Could Be a Holy Grail of Pterosaur Research. Mm. And there are some uh, fascinating takeaways from this. In it, Pickrell talks about how scientists have been arguing for over 100 years about pterosaurs and how they moved on land. Some thought they might be kind of awkward, like super clumsy, like a bird trying to walk instead of fly, which is how they're portrayed in the BBC thing. Well, if you've seen a bat crawl around, yeah, same thing. They're kind of awkward yeah. until they're flying, and then they, it, it's erratic, it seems like, but they're master flyers as well. But like if they're on the ground, right. it would seem clumsy and awkward. But of course, that's speculation. Well, sure. paleontologist Jean-Michel Mazin, wait, it's French, Jean-Michel Mazin, Nice. discovered footprints at a site <laughs> in southern France aptly named Pterosaur Beach. These footprints <laughs> yeah. belong to early pterosaurs, early ones, and they're not what anyone expected. The footprints suggest that the early pterosaurs were pretty good at getting around on all fours. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. weren't clumsy after all. 
Right. Now, Sidney Gregg saw this thing running on all fours. I want to remind everybody that. He said it ran on all four feet with wings extended and sailed away. And hopped like a kangaroo at And hopped like a kangaroo. Now, Noah Voss, who does a biological analysis of what this thing might have been, thinks more that it was some kind of giant bird rather than a bat-like creature, like I'm Mm. pitching here. Voss Mm -hmm. points out that Greg said it was more like a kangaroo, as Forrest just said. He thinks, based on the original accounts, that whatever the front two of the four legs or whatever is running on would be Mm -hmm. in this situation, maybe they were not attached to the leading edge of the wings. Right. And if not, then we got to rule out pterosaurs, which we should have already ruled out because they've been gone for 100 million years. (laughs) But (laughs) uh, none of this makes sense. Now, the pterosaurs from Pickerel's Scientific American article in this new as of 2020 discovery had five toes on their back feet, not four like their later relatives. And their front feet, the toes pointed forward, not twisted to the side like the later ones. Now, this discovery, which is just from early 2020, is a game changer in the study of pterosaurs. It's got paleontologists evolving their understanding of them and that they could have run really well on all fours. Still, at no point are we hearing anything about three toes, Mm -hmm. either in the early pterosaurs or the later pterodactyls. Now, there's some birds with three toes, like the three-toed woodpecker. It's right Mm -hmm. there in his name. Quail, apparently. (laughs) Uh, But none that fall into anything that would align with this encounter. Also, I don't think we need to talk about owls. I'm not talking about owl tolls. If you want to hear no, about owls and whatever, Kelly um, Hopkinsville. But, I'm not talking well, about sandhill cranes. I'm not talking about <laughs> tall, skinny birds that these things might. No, right, we're not even. Right. No our friends, uh, but our friends over at the Hellier Club, Hell, yeah. Hellier Fire Club, brought up the turkey track thing and, and the weird symbolism that that contains and finding that in that. And that is a three-toed thing with a with a back toe. And you do wonder if the if the foot's not flat, maybe the back toe was up on the ankle a little mm-hmm. bit or, mm-hmm. or maybe the surface that it was in, because I think it was kind of a yeah. dirty, sandy surface. Maybe it didn't register. So maybe it actually right. had four toes. You know, we don't know because we don't have the cast and we don't have pictures of the cast and we don't have the only description we have is from H.H. Phillips article, which is, you know, just like it had three toes. What if two toes were right next to each other? Maybe had four and two of them were next to each other. I don't but know. But still, that's my point. It's like yeah. you, all this wild stuff happens in the middle of the night. You go there the next day. It's like, unless you want to say maybe... <laughs> It's like, I get a little trigger happy, I blew out the window, and then I had to fake it, a print. Right. <laughs> but but it's after the fact. It's like, he wasn't the first one to see that. Like, I got drunk no, and I shot the window, but like, no, help me fake this second. print. That's what I'm saying is that, imagine you and I like, what the heck is this? And it's a yeah. print of this massive, shouldn't exist kind of thing. Right. Uh, it's right. also like uh, the cast that, uh, which is also mentioned, uh, I think in Hellier, season one or two, but... Uh, our good friend Stan Gordon has a cast of a three-toed something. Yeah, that he's got a picture of, and it's like I, he got a report. He went out there. They took a cast, and like there it is. What that is, who knows? Right. But again, again, it's then now you're talking really, about goblins, really big woodpecker. Yeah, a giant, woodpecker. <laughs> a giant with big fat sausagey toes. Sausage toes. Is somebody again back there in 1903 with more knowledge? You know, might be able to determine more closely what the lineage is of this thing. You know, the only thing that's even remotely plausible for mm-hmm. me as a bird is the California condor. It's yeah. the largest North American land bird. I've seen these in person at the yeah. Santa Barbara Zoo, and these are some big <laughs> birds. The wingspan is up to around <laughs> 10 feet. Yeah. It can weigh 26 pounds. It can be three and a half to four and a half feet tall. Yeah. This is a possibility. Now, this thing would seem so big that it might shock a witness into thinking they were seeing something crazier. But here's the thing about the California condor. They don't live in Iowa. 
Right. Lewis and Clark didn't even see them until they got to the Pacific Northwest in 1805, but uh-huh. not east of there. Right. By 1903, even those were mostly gone. But they yeah. were still in the mountains of Baja, California, up until the 1930s. So they don't really work. However, they do nest in caves. Uh, yeah, in cliff sides, cliff sides, yeah, caves. Yeah, cliff side yeah. caves or whatever. Mm-hmm. But they have no history in Iowa. They have feathers and they definitely do not have lights on their heads. No, which remind me to speak on that before we end for tonight. Well, this is your chance because oh. the only thing I have left <laughs> are my final thoughts. So if you want to oh. go first, I'll go after you and we'll we'll wrap it up. Hi, this is Richie Unrine from Boise, Idaho. You are listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now back to the show. That sounds delightful, my friend. I don't have many thoughts, and they're not that insightful or profound or (laughs) even that interesting. I just have really one because the the thing that captivated... Oh, sure, we read stories like this all the time, and they're they're kind of fun. Thunderbirds. No, I love the... My thing, my angle on this that I, I love are the ancient native descriptions because I don't know, it was such a part. uh, I mean, I grew up with a lot of native art around me, let's say, because it was just part of where I grew up and you'd see lovely buckskin artful things with beads Mm -hmm. and uh, nothing of the Thunderbird, but that was part of it. It was or adopted or, or borrowed, but I just, I just love the art and the craftsmanship and uh, totems and kind of fun stuff like that. And so that was just part of uh, my, uh, realm in the artistic thing. So it's a very mythic and prevalent thing in my imagination, let's say. Giant birds. And of course, you know, we all saw that in media and cartoons and yeah, just weird, uh, fantastical movies. It's always brought up. So it's not that much of a stretch, you know what I'm saying, for people to have that as part of your mythology or before dinosaur bones were found. And I think they surmised at least from the documentary we saw as much as 8,700 miles for mating purposes, which is pretty amazing. But then uh, the the continents look a little different. They're a little scrunched together at that time. Yeah. But yeah. just have more control over the the earth and the terra. And so it's, it's always been part of our imagination. And then you actually find bones like, oh, no, these big things like that did exist. Perhaps, and uh, I think it's likely even that the native legends from around the world, not just Native American legends, but legends around the world predate to the discovery of these fossils. I mean, do you, do you know that or is that a no, question still? We don't know that. Like, okay. Uh, and, yeah. uh, and that's something I'm going to touch on here in a minute. Okay. I, I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. But landing on that, I think I tend to believe like people had tremendous cultures uh, when we talk about Cahokia and experiences and, and far advancement that I think that has been swallowed up by the earth. And uh, I don't know if you want to put me in the camp of the Graham Hancocks, but just that we had tremendous, I'll just say, I, I prefer to believe that we had tremendous experiences and knowledge that has somehow been lost. That's nothing, may not even be supernatural. It's just more a sense of fantastical back when the earth was more magical. And that is where my preference and predilection and imagination lies in that, yeah, the earth was uh, a lot more interesting naturally in that sense. And maybe that's gone and been swallowed up and occasionally we get little spotlights of it. And now I'm getting to what I found the most intriguing about this case is that's what I'm saying is that you could have your uh, 
Ornithacarus stories, your pterodon stories, your thunderbirds, your Picasso birds, your Piazza birds, whatever you got. That's pretty amazing in itself. But this encounter here, which was pretty well documented, had one feature that is not seen really in that sense with anything else, and also a little bit of an inkling on their behavior. Because, like I said, the Onothacarus travels 14,000 kilometers to mate on a distant shores. And it's like, uh, are you sure? I mean, we found other bones, but I think a lot of this is, it's just, a, again, a very educated guess, but a guess right. nonetheless. That's, right. we don't really know. We're not really sure. I think the fossils may not even tell us what colors these things were what sounds they could have made. We, we certainly, uh, if you trust uh, Sam uh, O'Neill, uh, you know, he's blowing into the horn, uh, the cavity, and, and duplicating the sound. Maybe we can gauge what kinds of sounds and behaviors they made, judging on what, you know, and how birds acted today, but we don't really know for certain. It's an right. unknown. And I think they would uh, allow for that. The thing that's way out of character with the rest of these natural but impossible things is the light from a horn on its head. And when you tell me that, and it's like, okay, and your little note here about alien tech, some kind of machine, some kind yeah. of drone, yeah. some kind of scout. Well, we've done that. We've created all kinds. <laughs> We've got fake cats. We've got real cats that we've uh, uh, put cameras on. Yeah. There are fake birds that are drones. Well, and think about that for us, not to bring up a, a, the recent tragedy of the of the Titan sub. Sure, sure. But when you think about like a DSRV mm -hmm. going down to seven miles below the ocean, mm -hmm. if there was a fish down there, like the anglerfish or whatever lives there, the blobfish right. they call it, which I think does not in fact look like a blob until you bring it up from all well, that pressure. <laughs> those are two different things. That, that fish you is got getting the, a bad rap. No, but you, got like, the, you got the fish that looks like uh, Ziggy from the cartoons. Yeah, yeah. but I think he only sack. looks that way because he's not under all the pressure he's using. No, no, to. that's a different thing. The other one okay. is the uh, the anglerfish, and that well, one yeah, has the, angler, the little... Yeah. Yeah, that one has a bioluminescent little fishing pole right. and, a, and a giant foot. It's a size, thank God, it's the size of a football only. Yeah. And it's got a giant mouth with razor sharp teeth because, and you think like, it's not to scare you. It's that prey is hard to get down there. So when you get a bite on it, you got to hold it. Well, and this, and, and I've digressed now, but like, imagine that you met, went down super deep to wherever the angler fish is and you came down in a deep sea vehicle. Mm -hmm with a light on it and robot arms and that that fish had the power of English language, just like us, mm, mm. but it's been down there all this time. How does it describe <laughs> the sub to the other fish yeah. that it's hanging out with? Right. Yeah. It's not going to have, even if it's got, you know, a master's degree in mm -hmm. bottom of the oceanology, it's not going to have <laughs> any way to describe right. what it's seeing when it sees that thing with the light on its head yeah. and weird arms that seem like they're made of metal reaching right. out to grab at it or put it in a bag. Exactly. It's, it's, <laughs> and bring it to the, the surface. No, so. it's it's a good point. Uh, and again, it's a, an oft-made point, but something I thought Kevin Lee Nelson did a good job, again, in this section was uh, it's a lot about perception of reality and where you're at. If you showed a, a chair to a cave man or woman or cave person, they may not know. It's like, oh, you're supposed to sit on that thing? Well, I've been sitting on the dirt. Why? Right. My, my right. butt he feels a lot better. See, uh, I think he said they might see firewood. It's an interesting <laughs> display or an unusual, weird uh, configuration of firewood. It's like, yeah, yeah exactly. why did you, like, well, it burns, a, well, okay. <laughs> you know, but right. like, 
I'm perfectly fine sitting on the skin on the cave floor. So although we see it, again, that takes time and experience. And I think there's a hummingbird drone. I mean, geez, it's got a camera and a microphone on it. And certainly they've tried to do that. And now with uh, nanotechnology, things as small as... Well, as you saw, the scary part of that is some kind of assassin uh, hunter-killer drone that's the size of a hummingbird or smaller that just targets you. And now we're yeah. talking about Black Mirror episode where it's like you can't stop it and it just comes after you and fires a little charge. Wow. Well, yeah. They, I mean, they were doing spy drones on roaches in the fifth element. So I think... Uh, uh, well, it's <laughs> we've, we're there with our technology. So at this point in time in 1903, could it have been some kind of thing that's biomechanical even... Because, again, the thing that stuck with me, and I, I don't know, there's no answers here. I have no answers for you folks. But the fact that it was described as searching around the room and it turned off. And then it's it's like the Terminator. You you bump something. It's in the movies. You, you, like, you make a little thing and it goes, yeah. and the light comes on and scans like, it's scanning the room for you. Yeah. That's what uh, J-Dub was saying on Twitter. <laughs> he was like, it's a scanner, yeah. you know? It's like, yeah. Well, I, I wonder is that, because we've also heard that, again, there's a lot of tie-in made in the book and, and us and in years that have passed that descriptions of light is very important with these things, especially in the UAP UFO world, and that they've always got lights on them for the most part. Light is still a, an important factor. Is it photons? Is it the information that's being able to be gleaned from one or what they can do? Or is it directed energy? What's going on here? And so what you have in this case is perhaps, it, it's like what Terry Lovelace said, that thing came over. And if you believe him, a beam shone down and it was scanning the campground and yeah. it was over the fire for a little bit. And he said, it didn't like shoot down like you see a laser do. It's like, it was just suddenly on. Yeah. And there were different colors, I think bright white, purple, violet, you know, whatever it was. It's in that to me seems like a sensor. It's not just sitting there trying to freak them out or give them a light, a laser light show. Right. It's gaining information. Is that what this thing was doing? And then you look at uh, other, other cases where something is scanning and could that have been like, okay, if you want to go to the alternate universe theory and that there's another timeline where in this universe, that's how these creatures have developed some kind of powerful bioluminescence that, unlike night vision would give you, gives them better sense of their surroundings. It's like a visual echolocation. Yeah. Because that's how distance finders work. With a, uh, You send out a signal, you get a, you get a signal back. You can tell the distance of things. You can One tell the shape of things. One ping only. So I don't know. That, that's what I'm saying is that I think it's, it's either coming down to me to be some kind of weird manufactured thing yeah, by some intelligence, or it was just a, a blip on the radar, a little fade in and fade out of something that's natural, but not of this world and only and partially supernatural. And, and like I said, one foot in the physical world and one foot out. And the foot that was in left a print. The foot that was out, that's the one that got shot and ineffective. All right. Well, that brings me to my closing thoughts, which overlap with that a little bit. Hmm. Paranormal investigators and pseudo journalists like us that have been at this for a while, we go over a lot of the same theories for this stuff over and over because, well, the toolbox is limited when it comes to the unexplained. That's why it's unexplained. There's no language to describe what's being seen. There's nothing to compare to for reference. Now, I've talked about this ad nauseum, the whole Flatland thing, one of my favorite Mm -hmm. books, how Mm -hmm. a 3D sphere intersecting a 2D plane would look like a straight line to the residents of the plane, and how a straight line intersecting a 2D plane at 90 degrees, for the sake of example, 
would yeah. appear like nothing more than a single point to those in the 2D plane. Right. Tulpas, egregores, quantum interactions, transdimensional beings, holographic universe, unknown cryptids, hoaxes. It's the same song that we bring every time, and people steeped in this like we are, and most of you who are regular listeners to us, and other shows like ours all know those words. Now, being sensitive to that, I wanted to dial up my own final conclusions here in a way I have not previously done on the show. Ooh. Now, my approach here was that this was something biological, as you could probably tell what I, you know, mm-hmm. dove into the most. And, and, and I thought it was. I drilled down on the pterosaurs and the bats and whatever else you've got. But the more I dug into that, the less I could make it work. And some of the details I couldn't make work at all. The light on the blunt horn thing being a major one. Multiple witnesses saw that. With what we've seen since we got into this topic, I'm no longer thinking it was biological. I think it was one of two things. I mm. think it was either a well-perpetrated hoax by these pillars of the community <laughs> okay, to play a trick not only on journalist H.H. H. Phillips, but the world. <laughs> For what reason, I don't know. Perhaps to draw more business to town. I, I'm not sure. Yeah. As we've seen, there were some crazy things going on at this time, and they were getting a lot of press. True. I don't yeah. think that's what happened here, but I have to accept that it's a possibility even though we have absolutely no proof of that. It's the Occam's Razor. Oh, boy. Ugh, that, don't, yeah, I hate I Occam's know, I know, I just did that to make you yeah. uh, do a frowny face. The idea that, well, look, back then, kids would, uh, they'd, they'd hit the, the barrel hoop with a stick, and that was fun. Yeah, there was, exactly. Maybe yeah. there were, I mean, people There's have no a TV. weird There's no internet. sense of humor. Can't get on TikTok. But I, I think oftentimes hoaxes are cover stories for something that went wrong that no one wants to admit to. Like the mm-hmm. guy who says a UFO hit his train. Google that one. Uh, <laughs> did it? I don't know. Maybe he just yeah. drove that train into a downspout from some kind of loading mechanism. Yeah. And it was his fault, and he didn't want to admit it because he gets fired, and he's liable for a ton of expensive damage. So yeah, mm. it's a cover story. So what would the town be covering for here? Well, trying to use a supernatural story to cover something up. What's the conspiracy? Well, UG Griffith was just coming home, thought he saw something. Nothing to that, really. I guess the only thing you might be covering for is firing pistols and shotguns through doors and out windows in the middle of the night. Maybe these guys were up to no good, and they shot at people they shouldn't have, so they made this whole thing up to cover that, and then they told a journalist about it just in case anything ever came back on them. It wouldn't be the first time, except that nothing unusual was reported from the town, time, or area. No murders, no one missing, no one maligned, no fires until 1911, no one accidentally shot, nothing to cover up. So be a hoax for fun, maybe? A cover story? Doesn't feel like it. So then where are we? I'm back to the biological. The detail for me that just kind of cemented the eyewitness accounts as true was when Sidney Gregg said it lowered itself down the telephone pole with its beak. What an odd detail to include, and also what Mm. a perfect description of a good old normal biological avian creature climbing down off of something. But but why would it do that? Especially if Sidney also said it ran on all fours. That was him. Mm -hmm. He said that too. What could run on all fours but still need a beak to climb down from a perch? It just gets stranger and stranger. So if he's not lying, and if he is, then so are all the other prominent members of town, then he's describing something truly fantastic. Now, I think instead of this thing being an unknown cryptid, if it existed at all, I think, and this is where we get far out, maybe it was some sort of manipulation of our reality manifested by the eyewitnesses themselves. What if, in some form or another, it already existed tangentially in our universe Mm -hmm. from cultural lore that predated even the local tribes of Native Americans or Indians? What if it had been around so long that it was originally connected to some kind of creature that was long gone? Now, I've said this before on the show. 
But before the development of written science to classify findings, what do you think mankind would have thought of if they came across the fossil of a pterodactyl or any uh, pterosaur? Do you think their first thought would be, oh, this is 100 million years old. These things aren't around anymore. <laughs> right. Thank the gods. Or would they think, wow, this is some kind of giant flying dragon beast. This one's been dead a while, but what if there's more? We have to warn our people. And the way you do that prior to an understanding of fossils and the 4.5 billion year history of Earth is you tell stories about it. Now, some archaeologists think humans have been in what is now North America for up to 25,000 years. It's hard not to imagine that some ancient cultures didn't find fossils and marvel at what they were. Now, they might have lacked the ability to excavate them or even take pictures, but they certainly didn't lack the ability to tell stories about them and create artwork about the stories. Now, imagine those stories being handed down for thousands upon thousands of years across multiple cultures and different languages, stories based on the very real truth of some giant or strange fossil that someone once saw or that maybe even an entire culture knew how to visit whenever they wanted. They might not have even treated it like a special place, thinking, oh, well, it's just evidence of another thing we have to watch out that's going to try and kill us. But this one is dangerously large, so we have to be careful. So let's say that's how the stories get shared. This is all wild, uneducated speculation on my part, mm. by the way. Freely admitting but I, that. But I love it. <laughs> now, here's where I'm going to take it into John Keel territory. Now, we, we covered Skinwalker Ranch seven years ago this September. That was 2016, nine years after Colin Kelleher and George Knapp, guests on our show in just this past January of 2022, mm -hmm. published Hunt for the Skinwalker, and four years before the first episode of The Secret of Skinwalker Ranch. It was a seminal series for us, and if folks are paying attention, George Knapp is still right in the center of literally everything that is happening with UFO UAP disclosure right now. Perhaps you saw him sitting on the front row directly behind Commander David Fravor, Dave Grush, and Naval Aviator Lieutenant Ryan Graves, along with our polarizing friend Jeremy Corbell. They were mm. all there. Mm -hmm. That's another topic, but if you listen to our series on Skinwalker Ranch and the multitude of shows we did after it, then you know that I personally saw it as a game changer in terms of how I thought of the paranormal, because in terms of things that were happening on the ranch, it was a kitchen sink paranormal cage match. The only downside was that it took years for things to happen. Robert Bigelow, who owned the ranch at the time, had scientists on the site for nine years studying it, and 99% of the time, nothing was happening. But that 1%, that was the craziest stuff you've ever heard of. Remember, everything is connected. Now, that was the first time I began to wonder how interactive paranormal phenomenon can be, because it sure seems like it knows when you're looking at it, which is the whole Schrodinger's cat principle. Is mm -hmm. the cat in the box alive or right. dead? Until it's right. observed, it's neither in both. Now, right. I have to point right. out, I am sharing what is considered an uninformed version of the observer effect, as is evidenced by this next passage. This from Wikipedia. <laughs> are you talking? Wait, are you, you talking about the Heisenberg uncertainty principle? Uh, a little bit. But this okay. is the observer effect specifically. Mm -hmm. A notable example of the observer effect occurs in quantum mechanics, as demonstrated by the double slit experiment. Physicists right. have found that observation of quantum phenomena by a detector or an instrument can change the measured results. So listen to that again. Observation of a quantum phenomena of quantum phenomena, excuse me, by a detector or an instrument can change the measured results. Despite the observer effect and the double slit experiment being caused by the presence of an electronic detector, the experiment's results have been interpreted by some to suggest that a conscious mind can directly affect reality. However, the need for the observer to be conscious versus merely existent 
as in a unicellular microorganism, is not supported by scientific research, I'll add a yet there, mm. and has been pointed out as a misconception rooted in a poor understanding of the quantum <laughs> wave function and the quantum measurement process. That's where I come in. I'm the poor understanding. So I'm I working, see. I'm working off a misconception rooted in poor understanding. I'm going to wear, I'm going to put that on my t-shirt. No. <laughs> That's so a great I'm, t-shirt slogan. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> misconception rooted in poor understanding. I'm acknowledging that. Now, measuring something shouldn't change it necessarily, but I'm still stuck on all the strange things people have seen that have been on our show, and this is an underlying component of all of those, and also a lot of the things that happened at Skinwalker Ranch back in the late 90s that seemed to very much be connected to their observers. Spooky action at a distance, non-locality of consciousness, and this is exactly why we've always been saying here, Russell Targ and Hal Putoff, Hal, uh, Dr. Hal Putoff, being in the news currently about with all this stuff, have been saying that the uh, it used to be the parapsychologists and the psychologists were interested in consciousness studies, and now it's been the physicists for the last yes. 20 years or so. That's because right. there's the something here. Exactly. Yeah, there's something here that affects this, and we just don't know. And you, we may have a poor understanding, but in a very rudimentary way, you might be able to see that. Let's just say it happens perhaps without the math. Here, yeah, supporting. Yeah, I like that. So. And, and this, again, this gets to the whole idea of the trickster and the paranormal. It's another excellent book by George P. Hansen. We've mentioned a million times on the show. But when folks ask me what has affected my overall outlook since we started the show, it's the tonnage of similar events that people have been through. There are so many of them, and so many of them are so specific to the experiencers or observers. They have common ground, mind you, but they also have details that seem custom-made for the people experiencing them. So here comes the craziest hypothesis I put out on our show for an unknown cryptid. And this could work not only for the Van Meter visitor, but my favorite, Sam the Sandown Clown, also <laughs> maybe Cisco Grove, all things we've covered in the past. What if the legend of these large, terrifying creatures is woven into human history for millennia and that somehow our collective consciousness conjured it into our reality and that over time it comes and goes from that reality because time means nothing to it? And we've said before, many times on the show, it doesn't care if you believe in it or not, because it's not real, at least not in our sense of the world. And on top of that, the more mankind dreams of it, the more its appearance and behavior adapts and changes to meet the most current idea of what it should be. As a result, it evolves and perhaps it blinks into existence when the right flurry of emotions and human energy develop to a point that it is summoned. And the more attention it gets, the more it hangs around. Once the energy is consumed or spent, at least for the moment, it vanishes again, only to return when we are ready for it to return. To paraphrase F. Scott Fitzgerald in The Great Gatsby, one of my favorite books, at any moment, the Van Meter visitor is both within and without. And we are both enchanted and repelled by what it was, or perhaps what it still is. <laughs> That's going to wrap up our two-part series on the Van Meter Monster, or as we'll now call the poor creature, the Van Meter Visitor. Oh. We're taking a one-episode break to attend Podcast Movement, but we'll be back on September 9th, 2023 with a new show. Meanwhile, join our Patreon to hear us on the much more candid Astonishing Junk Drawer at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends. 
Astonishing Legends is edited by Sarah Voorhees Wendell at VW Sound and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also head of research and the social media manager. Our technical producer is Ed Vicola, or as we call him, the mechanic. Special thanks to our announcer, John Bolin. Hi, I'm Christy. I'm Brad Middleton. Okay, sorry about this. I understand this is with no implied promise. I forgot to send the spelling, so. T-I-E. T-O-N. Our theme, which is available as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane at foundermusic.com. All other music and sound design for the show is composed and created by Alan Caressia. Our logo was created by Tommy Beaver Design, and our animated graphics for social media and YouTube are done by Joshua Sloan at DeadStreetProductions.com. Every episode going back to September of 2020 has a transcription available on its corresponding webpage at our website. Earlier transcriptions can be made available upon request to astonishingcontact at gmail.com. Astonishing Legends would not be possible without you, our listeners. Visit our store at astonishinglegends.com or interact with us and other listeners on Instagram, Twitter, Discord, Facebook, and YouTube. You can also visit us at patreon.com slash astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content, including the Patreon-exclusive show, Astonishing Junk Drawer, which is available every week the main show is not. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs>